What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 28 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. Wishing everyone an excellent 420. We went a little experimental with this episode, and we're lucky enough to sit down with Marble Slinger, director of the documentary Degenerate Art, which documents the glass pipe blowing movement, its community, and its evolution. And he's a pretty well-respected glass pipe artist himself, so it was cool looking at the culture from another angle. But we also talk a lot about his love for weed and how it, combined with his desire to express his creativity, actually led him to discover the art of glass blowing. We also discuss some of the early years of dabbing as well as the documentary. So I hope that you enjoy the shift in perspective in discussing cannabis resin. The podcast was born as an experiment and I hope to keep that same energy in the work. I think it's important to keep the conversation fresh and to stay true to the vision, which would not be possible without every person that makes up our community on Patreon. To be straight with you, although I thought it would be cool to make these interviews, it's still a little wild and baffling to me that it resonates with others. If anything, it's gone to show me how many cool people are out there who love great cannabis, who love great hash, who are generous, and who feel like part of a community, even though we all may be physically apart from each other. So honestly, thank you to each and every one of you. We could not do this without you. And if you're ever interested in checking out the community, the only place that you can grab the same shirt that all the guests receive when they come on the show, check us out at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn or click the link in our instagram bio which is also at the hashish in a big shout out to our sponsors another reason we're still able to bring you the podcast thank you to rosin evolution for being our main sponsor and always being so supportive of our vision they have great bags at great prices and the best customer service around again visit them at rosinevolution.com and on instagram at rosin evolution 100 that's the number 100 and use our savings code the letters thi the number 710 that's thi 710 all together and it saves you five percent on your entire order with rosin evolution shout out to the good homies powers plates the small batch rosin press company you can visit them at powersplates.com that's p-o-w-e-r-s plates.com or on instagram at powersplates it's pretty cool to see a company like Powers Plates grow over the last two years, which is about how long I've known about them. You know, Steve Powers, the creator of the Powers Plates, I met in a bit of a comical way, which we'll save for another day. But one thing I know about Steve is that he put all his passion into designing this set of plates. And for several years, he was a one man show. He designed them. He worked with the local machinists to bring them to life. He assembled them himself. He tested the units himself. He shipped the units himself while being head cultivator at a large cannabis company, which is why when I met him and his homie Scott of Taste of Cascadia and Alex of Cured Extracts at the Ego Clash, it was a turning point for the company in which Steve entrusted Scott and Alex with his baby to expand his vision of continuing to make place for his really good hash maker homies. And they are still based out of their garage and working with that same local machinist. They still have the highest quality rosin plates on the market because they don't skimp on anything. If anything, the system is over designed, which as a user is an amazing thing if you ask me. 
I personally love their Pelican case system that serves as both your temp readout and your carrying case. They just knocked off $100 off their pro kits. Plus you can use our exclusive code. Literally there's no other code that saves you another $75 by using the letters THI, which stands for the Hashish Inn. So go pick up your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com and use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI to save an additional $75. Shout out to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company. You can visit them at sixstarsociety.com. That's S-I-X starsociety.com, where you can find dope gear to show your love for the resin. Whether you make hash or not, use our exclusive savings code. Again, the letters T-H-I to save 5% on your entire order at sixstarsociety.com. You can also follow them on Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society. And last but not least, a shout out to our homies, Pele Polare, who you can visit at pelepolareco.com or on Instagram at pele underscore polare. They are your thermal jacketing specialist, as well as your source for high quality hash making tools, which help make your process more efficient. Again, visit them at pelepolareco.com and use our savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% on your entire order. And the last thing I wanted to say is shout out to those folks who left us an iTunes review and a big shout out to those who took the time to leave a written review, including Turp It Up, Cody G78, and R-E-C-O-T-L-O-L 420. Again, have an excellent 420, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 28 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shirag Mamir. Today, I am incredibly excited to be here with Aaron, aka Marble Slinger. You can follow him on Instagram at Sling1er1, that's S-L-I-N-G-O-N-E-R-1, or at Slinger.apparel, as well as at Degenerate Art Film. What's up, Slinger? Thank you, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Hey, thanks for having me, man. So if we weren't talking right now, would you typically be in your studio? Yeah, definitely. Yep. I would be in my studio. (laughs) (laughs) And remind us, how long have you been blowing glass now? I started blowing glass in the spring of 1997. And then in like August of 1997, I like quit my job and have been doing it full time since. So it's 2021. I, what is that? 24. I'm in my 24th year, I think. I am 46 years old and I started when I was 22. So more than half my life. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy, man. It's a long time and I'm sure it's been quite a journey. And, you know, to be honest with you, I've always liked glass, the like the aesthetics of it and obviously like the functions of them, but I've never been like super into glass. And as I've immersed myself more into like this modern hash culture, which is kind of what I'm calling it, I've been naturally learning more about the glass scene. And like I was telling you before we started recording, it's really fascinating to me to see the parallels. And, you know, the more I've given it thought, a simple conclusion that I've come to, and it's not, you know, anything groundbreaking, but is that glass pipe making really seems to be a product of cannabis culture. What's your take on that? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And I basically see glass pipe making as sort of the craft artistic expression of the legalization movement. Because if you think about it, 
no other quote unquote drug users are going to spend the kind of money and time investing into uh, a piece of paraphernalia to do their drug of choice. You know what I'm saying? Like, so an easy parallel, like a cocaine user is not usually going to purchase like a thousand dollar straw to snort blow. Whereas cannabis user, you know, might spend $200, $500, $1,000, $10,000, $20,000, who knows what kind of money to get some sort of artistic, interesting, functional glass piece to consume their hash, their cannabis product, what have you. That is saying something in and of itself that, you know, you got to ask like, well, why is that? You know what I mean? What, and I think a lot of that has to do with a sort of respect for what they're consuming. I think there's a lot of consciousness behind consuming cannabis and that's reflected in the pipes themselves. And cannabis culture has been demonized for a very long time. And I think making really artistic, expressive, unique, handcrafted, one-of-a-kind pieces sort of, you know, is a, is a counter protest to that demonization saying, no, actually, we don't think this is, we think this is beautiful. The pipe in itself is, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, sort of like an altar, and the cannabis or the extract is like the sacrament that's placed on the altar. So there's a ritual. You know, cannabis uh, traditionally has been about sharing, people passing a pipe or a joint or, or something around the room, and, and people partaking it together. It's not necessarily, um, it's not a selfish uh, ritual, per se. You know, if I'm in a room smoking and there's someone else who wants to be smoking, I'm going to, you know, pass my joint or my, my pipe over to them. You know what I'm saying? It's not the kind of thing you, you kind of consume in a selfish way. So there's a lot of layers to unpack with that, that I see, but I, I, I full, fully agree with that. Yeah, man. There's a lot of interesting things that you said in there. You know, I think the community aspect has become apparent to me as I look more into functional glass pipe makers and, you know, and you brought that word up functional. And so, you know, pivoting, but not really. Let's talk about pipes in general. So, you know, I don't know how much you know about like the history of pipes. I don't know anything, but I'm assuming they've been around for a long time. So at what point did glass come into play and combining that with the function of it being a pipe? Well, I've looked into it a little bit, especially when I was making degenerate art. I wanted to get some kind of understanding about what kind of history we were a part of. Uh, pipes, just like glasses and plates and cookware, are something that cultures throughout history have used. And so when archaeologists do digs all over the world and find relics from past more ancient cultures and civilizations, pipes are often found along with these other types of wares and they're used to understand the culture that use that use them, the the materials used to make the pipes, the shapes of them, the design, the the, the markings on them, the the decorations on the pipes, all give us clues about who was using them, why they were using them, maybe what their beliefs were, you know, di different things that we we uh, we use, you know. So basically, if you think about it, in a hundred years from now or 200 years from now, if someone's looking back on these times and they're trying to understand, okay, well, why, what, what was this thing that was happening, this little subculture happening in the United States that started in the, in the 90s and that came into the 2000s and et cetera? Like, why, why were they using glass? You know, why did it grow and, and become a bigger thing? 
And I think that just reflects the culture, basically. Me personally, when I first got into making glass, I was also just discovering glass pipes. And my first thing was I was a smoker and I got a glass pipe and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And then when I had the opportunity to try to make one, I just kind of segue from collector user into also a maker. And I think that's, that's a lot of people, you know what I mean? So the, the people that are driving the culture are the smokers and the makers, basically. And the, the, the smokers are becoming the makers, you know what I mean? So really, it's just a reflection of the modern day culture. It's an expression. If you even look at clothes people wear at different decades or different trends, it, it, it all reflects on the, the, um, the consciousness or the, uh, the collective consciousness of what was going on at that time. You know what I mean? So um, glasses is, is, a, is a like, uh, you know, it's an interesting sort of uh, medium that the type of glass we use is a hard glass or a silicate which is, was commonly known as Pyrex, which is a very famous brand name. And the benefit of it was that we could do it in our garages with torches and minimal equipment. So furnace glass, which is like glass blowing, what glass, most people know as actual glass blowing is a little more of an expensive setup, the kind of thing that your average person wouldn't necessarily be able to set up in their garage. You'd have to go to a school or a facility that has that kind of thing. But this became like borosilicate lamp working flame working, which is what we do to make glass pipes, became an accessible way for an average individual with only a little bit of money, they could do they could do that, they could set that up and do that. You know what I mean? So there's a even a class issue there of like it being accessible to people. Like when I first started, you know, I had like a hundred dollar welding torch and I did it in my kitchen and I had like a fifty dollar fan in the window in front of me. I built a table out of fifty dollars worth of wood, you know what I mean? And I had $50 worth of tools or something. Like it only cost me a few hundred dollars. You know, now the whole uh, glass scene has advanced with the demand for products like torches and tools and things like that. And, you know, now I have several thousand dollars worth of equipment that I use. But, um, but it, you know, you still today can start with very little money and you can make stuff. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, man. And again, you know, it's intriguing how, that really parallels, in this case in particular, hash, in my opinion, and how you called it almost like this uniquely American thing, this, this glass pipe making, you know, and, and how it came from the culture. And, and similar, like with the hash, I feel like a lot of it was driven by California, whether it's the, the culture that has been there for some time now, a strong cannabis culture that was like focused on growing you know, quality cannabis, as well as the medical laws and how all these things have come together. But what I find uniquely American about hash at this point is kind of like the hyper focus on how it melts and like all these uh, aspects that are being critiqued and uh, trying to be improved upon now. And so do you see that kind of same parallel in in glass and, and technique, has it got like way beyond anything you could have thought of like 20 years ago even? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, back when I first started blowing glass, the most expensive piece anyone sold was for $420. Um, now I'm seeing pieces that are going for 20, 40, 60, $80,000. So I never, ever could have predicted that. I want to like concentrate on the idea of it being American because the reason the way the United States is as a capitalist 
uh, economy and the, the way it, that, that really affects how things happen here. Like, and so the setting here is that marijuana is legal enough or accepted enough, but also taboo enough to be cool, but we can talk about it and we can express ourselves with it. Right. And then what I've noticed traveling around the world personally and smoking weed is that there's no other, there's no other economy for hash and marijuana like the United States. In other words, when I've been in Spain or any other country, there's just usually weed and there's kind of a going price in general. And there's not necessarily these different audiences that are like people who want to spend more money for a more boutique strain that's rarer and grown better. And, you know, tests like this, you know, like, uh, I, um, the United States is very unique and, and this is where I think the consumerism of the United States actually sort of works to our advantage because we have this whole market of this. We have a consumer demand for someone who wants to spend $100 on a gram of hash. So as a result, people are like, well, that's worthy of putting in a lot of time and effort to create something worthy of that price if people are willing to pay that. Whereas in Europe, for instance, I don't think very many people there are trying to spend $100 on a gram of hash. When I'm in Spain and I go to the cannabis clubs, people are generally, the local people are generally buying Moroccan hash for $10 a gram to mix into their cigarette. You know what I mean? They're not dabbing it. Um, it's a different type of culture, different type of weed smoking culture. And so in the United States, we, you know, we have the perfect setting for this kind of culture to exist in terms of our laws, in terms of how consumers are. There's more available. Your average person has more disposable income than probably most countries in the world. You know, a lot of people in a lot of countries, in European countries, your average person doesn't have disposable income to spend $100 on a gram of hash. You know what I mean? But in the United States, entrepreneurism and capitalism is thriving and people can make money to a point where there is certain people that can live these lifestyles where they can drive a fancier car, or eat, you know, fancier meals, you know what I mean? So there's a market for that kind of stuff. I mean, you can go out for dinner and spend 20 bucks. You can spend a hundred bucks. You can spend a thousand bucks. And there's someone who wants each of those things, you know what I mean? So there's someone who's going to create something for each of those price points and those markets and those audiences, you know, it's it, it, economics is consumer demand, you know what I mean? So supply and demand, if there's no demand for something, there's, there's going to be no supply for it because you know what I mean? Like there's no reason in another country if people are, if your average person scoffs at spending over a certain amount of money on a gram of hash, why would you spend longer to wash it? Or why would you separate the grades? Or why would you, you know what I mean? You'd probably just grow more production. You're going to grow something that's going to yield maybe more because it's about quantity, not quality, for instance. But you know, so uh, that blends over into glass for sure. You know what I mean? And there's different people who are in it for different reasons or who collect it or like, you know, there's everyone who wants a $20 pipe just to be able to smoke at a concert or on a hike. And there's people who, you know, look at it as like a painting and each day they follow the artists and they need it. They want a signed piece by a particular artist and it's important to them who that artist is, what they've done, how they've influenced the scene. And they, it kind of gets analyzed just like, basically the regular fine art world would and value very much gets determined on a, on a bunch of factors, just like a painting might have its value determined. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely shifting and it seems to be happening quickly. Now you brought up influences and you're originally from the New York area, correct? Yeah. I grew up on Long Island, actually Long Island, New York. And then I, I went up, I went to school. I went to film school actually in Ithaca, New York in upstate New York. And that's where I started blowing glass when I was uh, in Ithaca. Okay, cool. Yeah. And you know, I'm curious having lived on Long Island uh, as a youth, what were some of the things that you were seeing 
around you that influenced you even as you went to Ithaca, you know, whether it was museums or street art or whatever you were looking at? Yeah, all that. I mean, I grew up um, right on the border of Queens and Nassau County. So if you're not familiar with New York, I basically grew up right on the city limits of New York City, basically. I spent a lot of my youth in Manhattan running around. I saw the Grateful Dead. I saw hardcore shows. I went to clubs, dancing, raves. I played in a band myself when I was in high school, like a punk band that played all over Long Island and New York City. And I kind of just ran around causing trouble all over Manhattan as a kid. So like New York City life in general, everything from a museum to street art to graffiti and, um, you know, and just like kind of the New York vibe. I mean, one thing that I'm blessed to have grown up around is a lot of mixed cultures. You know what I mean? Like I, I grew up, New York City is a very international place. If you go there, you realize it's not as much an American city as it is like an international city. I mean, a New Yorker is like, you can't define what that is almost because there's so many languages being spoken and so many people from all over the world. It's kind of a beautiful place. So I, uh, I was very influenced by the whole, very influenced by, by the East Coast, by New York, by, um, you know, I was going to like see foreign films, independent film a lot. That influenced me. I ended up going to film school pretty much as a result of that. It's interesting to me that you say that there's, it's a hard to define what a New Yorker is because there's such diversity. But at the same time, I've heard you talk about having lived out West for a while for some years actually, and not feeling in your element per se out there and, and wanting to come back out East. So even though maybe you can't pinpoint what it means to be a New Yorker, what was it about the East coast? What was it that kind of was drawing you back? It was, yeah, it was interesting. It's hard for me to define. I lived in Seattle. I lived in Vancouver for about five years each with a little stint in Bellingham in between. And, um, those are really interesting to find the experiences in my life. But like I, like you said, I, I've kind of stated before, I definitely never felt like I, when I, when I got there, I never felt like, ah, I'm home. You know what I mean? I kind of always felt a little, a little alienated, not in a terrible way, actually. Sometimes that's good. I think it's good to be out of your comfort zone. So this is not negative at all. But what happened was, is I would go back to New York to visit every once in a while visit my family or what have you. And I'd go back to the West Coast and I'd brag about how amazing it was and how awesome it was. And every time I went home, I would just feel this comfort level that was just like different than it ever felt before. I don't know. There was a long period of my life while I was running away from the East Coast and learning, yearning for life and experience and things like that. Honestly, there are great people everywhere, but I have an affinity for East Coasters. Um, they're really ambitious and motivated and kind of have a go get them attitude. They talk quick and I'm kind of fit into that whole thing. And um, sometimes when I was on the West coast, I'd be hanging out with glass floors in Oregon. And I, I kind of found myself talking really fast. And I felt like I felt a little bit, it's great. I love hanging out with people that are different than me and I hope they enjoyed hanging out with me, but um, I don't know how to put this. I just, you know, sometimes I, I would like, you know, I would just realize I kind of come from somewhere. I kind of come from a different place. You know what I mean? Like I have a different influence, a different background. And uh, like, I, I love East coasters. I actually was trying to move back to New York and I um, came to visit Philadelphia and I never left. And I've been here for now over a decade, actually. I love it here. And I, it's crazy when I came to Philadelphia, a place that I've only visited barely 
once or twice in my life. So I never even really spent time here. But when I first showed up here after 10 years on the West Coast, I instantly felt like I was home. And I hadn't even, you know what I mean? Like, and there was a weird thing where even 10 years after living in Philadelphia, I still felt like I'm a New Yorker and I'm still learning about Philadelphia. Like I never felt like I was like, you know, I always, I don't know. But I always had this, right when I came here, I had this crazy feeling. It's, I can't explain it, but it was just like, you know, you go with your gut. I just felt so comfortable and so good. You know what I mean? And um, I went to the West Coast to learn to blow glass and, uh, and experience because that's really glass blowing culture is from Oregon. And, and I would throw Seattle into that mix. Without that experience, I would be nothing of what I am today in terms of glass pipe making. I mean, the West Coast dominates. The West Coast is it. They define uh, the traditions and they, they also innovate straight up. Um, sometimes I feel a little disconnected on the East Coast now that I live here and only visit the West coast so often. Cause I really feel like that is like, you know, that's the spot, but in the same time, I enjoy trying to be somewhere else and pick up different influences and try to like, you know, go my own little direction. I've always enjoyed trying to um, not necessarily completely follow trends um, and try to like kind of do my own thing. I feel like if too many people are doing something at first, I kind of like, I'm not sure if I want to do that. You know what I mean? I don't know. But, uh, I don't know. I feel blessed. It's been an amazing, it's been an amazing journey, honestly. It's been a wild ride. Since you brought up Philly and earlier you, we were talking about the street art and the graffiti. And I've also heard you talk about studying subcultures in a way also to kind of explore the ideas that might come with glass pipe making in the future. Talk to us a little bit about what you know about graffiti. Kind of give us some cliff notes. God, I mean, I'll tell you what, like, I grew up around New York. So I grew up seeing it in one of the most, you know, proper environments in a sense. I mean, New York is definitely legendary for as a birthplace of graffiti, period. I went to high school from 1989 to 1992. And that's, I'd say around 89 maybe 88, 89 is when I really started hanging out in Manhattan on my own as like a young kid, 13, 14 years old. At that point, the, the, the subways were pretty painted over. There was actually certain particular experiences I had then that didn't translate to me to later in my life, like stuff I saw. For instance, there are these two guys, Cost and Revs, that are kind of known. They're known for two main movements. One is big roller tags and the other one is for kind of doing wheat pasting. But these guys used to do these, they used to paint, they used to take these eight by 10, eight by 11 pieces of paper flyers and they would write cost is here or cost fuck McDonough or, or, or like, you know, call cost and revs and there'd be a phone number and they would paste them all over. Like you'd go to a subway station, you'd be going down to the subway and the whole thing would be like a repetition of all these flyers. I actually didn't even think of it as art. I thought they were, I thought it was someone trying to get you to buy a product or a service to be honest with you, because there were these phone numbers involved with it. I never actually called the phone number because I was never trying to buy it, but I saw it all the time. The other thing I actually randomly saw, which is a little cliche now, but I started to see the Andre the Giant has a posse stickers. It was the kind of that, like, you know, if I give you the time frame, like I said, 89 to 92 is when I was first hanging out in Manhattan a lot. That's when Shepard Ferry was starting to put just that first basic sticker around. And, you know, in New York City, like the East Village and Soho, there are certain parts of New York City that are kind of the hipster, cool, artsy part of the city to hang out. And of course, I spent a lot of time there. And uh, so I used to see these cost and revs flyers. And I'd see these, when I saw the Andre the Giant stickers too, has a posse, 
I literally thought it was an advertisement for a brand. I did not think of it as art. I didn't think it was cool. I wasn't necessarily even influenced by it right away or anything like that. It's just something that I noticed enough because it was repeated enough that it was like filed away. And then years later, when the internet first came around, actually, like I discovered Shepard Ferry on the internet. Someone mentioned him to me. And this is around 2001 or 2002. And I was first getting a computer and first using the internet. And I got online and I went to his website and I was like, holy shit, this is the Andre the Giant sticker guy. And he had this whole manifesto about it and he makes all these art pieces and he was just starting to like really like roll. I don't think he even had a clothing line yet, but I was like, wow, that's crazy. I remember seeing that all the time. I was like, that was art. I was like, whoa, that like, like it's cool because it wasn't like, you know, it, you know, you couldn't have that quite the same experience right now. You know what I mean? Like you're probably going to find out who Shepard Ferry is. He's done the hope poster for Obama and things like that. He's like super famous. So people recognize his look. And if you see it, you're like, Oh, that's that artist. You know what I mean? Or whatever. But like when I was growing up, I'm going to admit, like I didn't graffiti was cool, but I didn't think about it that much. Like, um, I definitely played around with tagging as my friends did and stuff like that, but it was very minor. And I wasn't trying to be a graffiti artist and I didn't look as graffiti as art. And there, and there was other stuff I saw around too. Mostly like street art was just starting to happen. So I, this artist Swoon was starting to put stuff up and this other artist Fail were doing these stencil pieces and stuff like that. I've actually become a very big collector of their artwork now because of how it affected me when I saw it in its environment when I was younger. You know what I mean? I had this connection to their work actually. But anyway... I forgot even what the fucking question was, but you were asking me, well, what do I know about graffiti? But I'll tell you what, what that all leads to is this. So I started to kind of realize later in life that these things I had seen, these cost and rev flyers, these uh, uh, shepherd fairy stickers, that this was art, right? I didn't even, and that started to really intrigue me. And then around the same time, I think it was 2002, I saw the movie Star Wars and Star Wars is a documentary that was made in like 1982, basically about the like, about bombing on trains and, and about hip hop, about graffiti and the film blew me away. And the film itself, basically it really frames graffiti in this as a, as a culture that's interesting. And, and it gives this whole context to it that like, even it, it made me look at it different. And I wasn't someone who didn't like it. I liked it. I was a fan and I was becoming more of a fan of it, but this movie changed everything for me straight up. And that film is actually what made me realize I had to make a film. Because I felt like if there were young kids who were writing on walls and trains, if they could, if they, if, if a documentary could be made that could like, kind of like, you know, undemonize that culture, just like marijuana culture was demonized. You know what I mean? Um, if they could put it in a context that actually gave people and critics and people a way to like intellectualize it and respect it. You know what I mean? Like graffiti writers weren't thinking about the idea that they were reclaiming public space that they didn't own, even though they, you know, lived in it. You know what I mean? And that's a whole philosophical thing that academics like to bring up when it comes to street art and graffiti, that whole notion of, of taking space of who owns public space. You know what I mean? Corporations can buy big billboards because they have the budget but your average person, working class individual, doesn't have a say in their community. You know what I mean? Pepsi or something can dominate the landscape. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so it's about money. It's very classist. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I don't know. All this stuff was really influential to me in general. Yeah, what's ironic to me is to hear how graffiti was to you 
maybe what like pipes were to smokers and to some, right? Like where you appreciated it and you liked it, but you didn't see it as art. And now not that I didn't see it as art. I definitely thought graffiti was kind of cool. Like, but wait, I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to say, but uh, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I've, uh, I've watched, obviously I've watched a few interviews that you've done or heard a few interviews that you've done. And the word innocence comes up a lot and you use it in the context of, making your first pipes without knowing what you're doing with some friends. And you mentioned earlier, like your cheap setup and innocence in relation to having the love and the drive to keep creating work under sketchy legal climates without any prospects of being rich and famous or even being able to show off on Instagram. So my question to you is, have you found that it's possible to keep that initial energy, that innocence, that joy, that kind of carefreeness in your life and in your work throughout the years? Wow, that's a good question. Um, and, and the first thing I think is when you say all that, I, I get weirdly nostalgic for the old times. Um, and, and, and in a sense, at the same time, back when I was, I was a starving artist for a long time doing this. I went through a lot of struggle and I was like, as someone, when I was young, I definitely didn't care about money. I grew up going to like Fugazi shows and Fugazi is a band that will only play for $5 or less or free. They won't sell their CDs for more than a certain amount of money. They don't make merchandise. They don't care about marketing to you. That whole idea I thought was amazing. I love it. Um, and it's funny cause I, I make t-shirts and I market the shit out of things. So I'm, it's funny for me to say that whole <laughs> interview will be like, what do you mean you love that? Yeah. That's not even what you embody right now. You have a whole brand going. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you know, the world is full of contradiction, but, um, but also things change. And so that's my point actually, cause like a uh, 21, 22 year old me who was started blowing glass would never be doing what 46 year old me is doing now. Like, or would care about that at all. Your, your life changes. Things change when you get older. I'm just really happy that I existed when it all existed. I, I, I think about it like this. If I tried to start, let's say I was 22 right now and I was discovering glass pipe making and I had the opportunity to get into it, to get a torch and throw myself in the fray and see what I could do. I would be really intimidated right now by the way it is. Social media, even especially really, it intimidates me and I'm like, someone has been doing this for a long time and I guess I'm considered a name and like, you know, have like some street credibility or whatever. There was something beautiful back in the day of doing it with just your immediate friends in some kind of like ramshackle warehouse or basement or garage and not knowing who else out there was really doing it also and not really worrying about it. You weren't worrying about being cooler than another group or people or you didn't know what they were making or how much money they were making or any of that kind of stuff. And now it's like, you know, I don't know. It's awesome. I mean, I love the scene. I don't ever want to like try to talk down on glass pipe making or be like a hater or act too much like an old head who's like, things aren't the same or this, that, and the other. I'm glad it's where it's at. I mean, to be honest, if it wasn't where it was at right now, I probably wouldn't be doing it at all for a living or be involved because as a, for, you know, I couldn't continue to live as a starving artist anymore, honestly. Like, but that was just indicative of what my priorities were. Like I never, 
I didn't go to a trade show for at least nine years. I started blowing glass in 97. The first like trade show in Vegas I went to for glass pipes was 2006. And the reason I went to that trade show was because I was starting to make a movie and I thought I should go to this trade show and I should interview people and I should document it. Right. And I did bring a few pipes to sell, but I never was into that. Um, my first few years of blowing glass, I didn't even sell much to head shops, to be honest with you. Everything was like street. You know what I mean? I knew drug dealers and growers who would buy pieces from me and they'd buy extra pieces. We'd call them cases of glass. He'd come by a gun case. These guys would come by the studio and dump a pile of nugs on my desk. And they'd be like, let me get a $2,000 case. Here's 500 bucks right now. Like make me a piece of glass and I'll give you the other 1500. You know what I mean? I'll, give me, make sure there's a sidecar in there or something like that. Like whatever. And you'd make a case of glass and they'd go sell it to their friends or they'd go to a festival or a fish show. Or I'd go to, I used to do fish tour and make, a pile of glass and go to fish shows. And literally I just cared about getting to the next show and like, you know, having a, a sack of weed basically or whatever. Um, my whole bunch of first years of blowing glass was I was really into partying like in, 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 a, in like a positive way too. I didn't really like overdo it. I never became an addict of hard drugs or anything like that, but I love raves and I love fish shows. And if I wasn't, going to a rave on the weekend, I was blowing glass all week to save up money to do the next fish tour, basically. Um, I was trying to like, to me, I actually didn't even really worry about collecting things. The idea of owning things, of having furniture, or having even, even owning art, I kind of like, uh, felt like life experience was kind of the most important thing. And that's what I was, that was my goal in, in the world was life experience. You know what I mean? And like, it was cool. I felt like a certain balance actually, because when I was in the studio, I worked with guys like Jason Lee and a bunch of other cats that were like really innovative and really good at what they did and took it really seriously. And so there was like this fun, friendly competition that like kept me evolving, you know what I mean? And kept me interested and, and like, um, but at the same time, I think it was a blessing to not like to, and that was just in the sphere of this little room I was in with my friends and I didn't know about the rest of the world or whatever. And now with social media and everything, I don't know, you know, maybe it's just, it's like I grew up in the perfect generation sort of because, you know, I, I totally utilize social media. I'm not too old for that or whatever, but um, I grew up without it. You know what I mean? Like I didn't start using the internet until I was like three or four years into blowing glass. You know what I mean? Like that was like 2001 or 2002 is when I first started using the internet. So, you know, there's this kind of whole balance. Like to, I, I'll be honest with you, it causes me anxiety. You know what I mean? There's like, you know, I got a fucking uh, a DM and anyone can just send me messages. And if you don't respond to them right away, people are like mad at you and shit like that. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, it's just crazy. You know what I mean? Like, and, 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 you know, the other thing is like, people think they know you through these things. They think because they think based on what you post or something that they know who you are and what you think. And none of these people know me through social media. I, I'll tell you right now to anyone listening to this, you do not know me through what I post on social media. I give you a very small glimpse of my interests, basically, through social media. But I'm, I don't get very personal there, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. I don't even know. The world's, the world's fucking crazy. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a busy place, man. And there's a lot of stuff going on, and everybody can be connected if they want to. And, and most people, people seem to want to be. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a blessing. Thing. Let me tell you that the fact that I can make a piece of glass or come out with some t-shirts or whatever it is. And I can sit here in my underwear, taking bong hits and put a picture online and people can PayPal me the money and stuff like that. And I can just, 
print them. You know what I mean? The fact that I can do all this without having to leave my house. I mean, it's great. I'm, I'm loving it. So, I mean, yeah. it's a gift and a curse. You know what I mean? Like I, I never, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I try not to take anything for granted at all. I never think, I never try to feel like I've made it or I'm successful or I'm cool or anything. I always feel like I have more work to do. You know what I mean? To get somewhere or do something. And um, I just try to keep my head down and move to the next thing I'm trying to do or, you know, keep myself interested, pay my bills. I don't know. Um, it's interesting, actually, right now, you're catching me at an interesting time because I'm just coming off about a year hiatus of blowing glass. The whole pandemic threw my whole world for a loop, personally. I mean, it threw everyone's world for a loop, so I'm not even trying to, like, you know, my loop ended up being okay, actually, um, in the end. It really wasn't a bad loop, but, you know, my life dramatically changed, actually, because, actually, co coincidentally with the pandemic, I was already closing down a major studio and about to start working on building out a new studio, and then the pandemic slowed all that down. I wasn't able to blow glass for a good year, um, which is actually why I sort of ramped up to some extent, my whole t-shirts and merchandising and creating other things, because actually that was the only way I could make a living. I literally, I mean, not only did I not have a studio, it's a pandemic. So you're, you're like, do I go work in someone else's studio? Like, you know, we're wearing gloves and masks to go to the grocery store. I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to give someone else COVID. I'm not trying to get it from someone else, you know, all this stuff. Like it was just a crazy time period. So um, it kind of forced a little bit of a change in me, which ended up being positive, honestly, because after like 20 plus years of doing this, like I've never really taken a break from blowing glass. And so, and it's a grind and it's hard and it's physical. So to sort of be able to step back and like, I'm at a point now where I'm anxious to blow glass. Like I just got my studio running really recently. And every moment I get on the torch, I love it. Like I, I'm, I'm so excited to do it and it feels great. So actually in some senses, it's been positive because I'm getting back to some of that innocence where like, I've actually found another way to pay my bills, at least for right now, where now I can blow glass a little bit on my own schedule. I don't have to like, you know, create deadlines and, and like kind of like compromise what I'm making to what I think someone will buy, like what kind of piece they're looking for, or what price point they want or what pattern they're looking for or, or take a particular order from someone or something like that. I can kind of get back to the love of the medium. And, and to me, a lot of glass is like, it's not about making money. I mean, there's a lot of time you have to spend on your torch, making mistakes and trying new things to try to get somewhere new. If you want to come up with a new pattern or push yourself, your own skill set, or come up with a new design, you have to, you have to fail a lot. You have to like make, you can't. And if you get to a point where blowing glass is the only thing you do for a living and you can either step to the torch and pay your bills or, you know what I mean? You're basically like, I'm going to have to step to the torch to pay my bills. Like that's what I, this is what I do. And then if you do that nine to five, five days a week, that's not what you want to do for fun. You know what I mean? Or that's not what inspires you. Now you're not necessarily like, well, now that all my bills are paid, I'm going to try this thing that's like random. That's not going to make any money. You know what I mean? Like one interesting thing that I think that a lot of pipe makers, including myself have done is sort of, I consider, I, I consider a spectrum. There's basically making, making art or making whatever you want for the sake of just doing it. Cause you want to do it where you don't know if there's a paycheck involved. You're not worried about the price point. You're not worried about how much time it takes or materials or whatever. It's just, you're doing something purely because you want to do it. Then there's the other end of that spectrum, which is trying to make something commercial. Like you're trying, you're thinking about that stuff. You're like, okay, how long does it take me to make it? How many materials are involved? What's the target audience? What's the price point? I'm trying to do this to pay bills. And then there's like a spectrum in between. And I feel like a lot of pipe makers end up right in the middle. And I've been there too. And what happens is you end up compromising both things in your life. 
you're trying to stick to your vision because that's why you do what you do. But at the end of the day, you need to sell it to someone. So then you're like, well, I guess I'll add these other elements into it or like tweak it like this and that because that'll make someone buy it. But what happens is, is you're not totally thinking commercially. So you don't make so much money and you're also compromising your vision. So you're not really just following your, your vision, you know? So more and more, I'm trying to live that in my life of like figuring out ways that I can create commercial art or commercial products or things that I can make a living off. And then I can do stuff on the side and create time and resources for me to do something where I don't know if it's for sale. I don't know if you're going to buy it. Maybe I'll, you'll, I'll never even show you anything because I'll make a lot of mistakes and that'll be it. And I'll just eventually explain to people that actually for the last year, I've been in my studio making, you know, mock-ups or whatever, who knows, you know what I mean? Like, but you know, personally, I'm just trying to like always move forward in my own personal life. Actually, I feel really blessed with the pipe scene because it, it more than anything, it gave me an audience and they're paying attention. And that's amazing because I can do stuff and maybe they'll like it, maybe they won't, but at least I have someone paying attention to like it or not like it. Like that's a blessing. Like even people who hate it or don't like it, like that's cool that they're even out there to care that much to like even have that opinion. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, it's all fucking rad. I don't even know. You know what I mean? Like I'm taking, trying to take, you know, I, I went to school for filmmaking and photography and then, uh, and I've always been really into weed. I, I told all my friends back in the day, I'm going to make a living doing something with weed. I'm telling you. And I kind of knew that it wasn't going to be selling weed and growing weed. I just knew it. And I've dabbled in those things. I realized I'm not a gardener. I realized, you know what I mean? Like certain things. I realized I only enjoy doing that so much. You know what I mean? That I'd almost rather be creative and then buy weed off my buddy who's a really good gardener. (laughs) Right, right. Who's so passionate about it. And when he talks to me about it, I'm like, you're on another level than me, bro. Like I can't even like, where I might get into like film or glass or certain mediums and I can get really deep on that to some points where people are like whoa bro you're thinking about that on a level I just try to watch a movie and have a good time like you're really like analyzing it from this whole other perspective you know yeah again I think it goes to whatever you're passionate about you know like that's that's what you really really get into the nitty-gritty about and you you care about that extra detail that extra layer of uh, thinking about it or analyzing it so I think this would be a good point for us maybe to take a quick smoke break. Go with that. Cool. As always, a big shout out to every person that makes up our community on Patreon for being the lifeline of the podcast. We literally couldn't have produced episode 28 with Marvel Slinger without you. So thank you. And a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including the homie Eric Maney, the crew at Heritage Mendocino in Ukiah, Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat in Tofino, Canada, Rudy in Palmdale, California, Kenny in Pasadena, Pleasantly Pressed in Maryland, Deal Grows in NorCal, Mikey from MTS Farms, Hash and Hedys in SoCal, Haji aka Solventless Terps, the boys on the Big Island pressing for show, our good friend Jen Doe 420, David from Rosin Evolution, the man D. Pesci 44, the good friends from Mission Hill Melts, Kevin from Lifted Indina, the homies Big C and the Real Cannabis Chris, Mario in Illinois, Kyle the Full Melt Fiend, Terp Wizard in Michigan, Humphrey Hashish in Oregon, and the Ganja Guru in Puerto Rico. Thank each and every one of you, and now back to the episode. 
the thing for me and glass pipe making in general, period, is that it, first and foremost, it's all about weed, straight up. Smoking weed is a huge part of my life. I was an activist trying to legalize weed, like back in college. I ended up becoming like president at one point of like our legalization club or whatever uh, at school where we were trying to raise money to actually buy books and put them in the library to like have alternative resources for people to learn about marijuana history and different aspects of hemp and all sorts of stuff like that. And so, you know, in terms of like this being a hash broadcast and talking about weed and hash, it's like, I'm not someone who ended up making pipes because I thought glass blowing was cool. And then next thing you know, I'm selling pipes to kids. I thought pipe making was cool. Like I would never have even been blowing glass if it wasn't for weed and wanting to smoke weed out of a pipe. Like when I first started making glass, I definitely come from this. The rest of the glass industry, not industry, the rest of the glass world, they have a weird relationship with us, meaning us pipe makers, because a lot of us, there's some people, some pipe makers that do come from a bit of an academic background when it comes to glass blowing, institutional. I don't, I didn't go to any institutions or take any classes at an institution when it came to glass. So, um, everything for, I didn't even realize I would get into glass blowing the way I have. Like I'd actually like understand this medium and learn the language of it. You know what I mean? I came from a very street sense, but what I'm trying to say is my whole life I've been traveling and I, I proud pride myself on smoking weed and hash and doing it all over the place with a lot of interesting individuals, and a lot of places and having a nose for it. And it's been interesting. It's like, you know, you know, looking at my age and trajectory, I've been smoking weed. I started, actually the first time I ever smoked weed was at a Grateful Dead concert, randomly enough, in 1990. It was September 16th, 1990. I can know the date because I know the show, okay? It was at Madison Square Garden. And I was literally, it was one month before my 15th birthday. I was 14 years old. So I've been smoking weed since 90 and it's 2020. So that's 30 plus years of smoking weed. And I'm talking like once I started smoking weed, it was no turning back for me. Like I've been smoking weed every day, pretty much my whole life. I could name the few different moments in my life where I took a week off here or two weeks here, or I was in Southeast Asia and couldn't get some good weed for a week or whatever it was. You know what I mean? But it's few and far between. I pretty much smoke weed every day. And um, from East Coast to West Coast to like, I've traveled this country all over the place and, you know, internationally a bunch. But I, I, I pride myself on knowing good weed and good hash. And I've had some really unique, amazing experiences smoking, um, smoking <laughs> and watching yeah. trajectory, watching, I mean, you know, I remember when they first introduced Proposition 215 in California, my mom was actually living in San Francisco at the time. So I was spending a lot of time in San Francisco. I like forced my mom to vote yes on that. So I remember the birth of medical marijuana and then segueing into eventually meeting bubble man. You know what I mean? I, I watched the birth of water hash, which is like a fucking revolution at this point. You know what I mean? Which was interesting because it kind of, I mean, actually bubble man at the same time was also the first person to ever give me a dab period. I'm talking of hash oil before he ever was bubble man, which, uh, I guess we can just get into the bubble man story if you want. <laughs> sure. Yeah. We were talking a little bit during the, the, our downbreak and, uh, you know, we were talking that I, I had talked to Mark. Still take a break. I feel like you're not taking a break. Did you, did you get a smoke break? Because you were like going to take a smoke break. And I was like, no. Oh, I, <laughs> I haven't, but I'll, I'll take it here in between. You're, you're rolling yeah. and then I'll figure out how to take yeah, a little I'll dive in here. talk a lot and you can smoke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, so you told, we, we, I mentioned earlier, I think, that you, you went out west. And, and part of that, you, you went out to Seattle. You also lived in B.C., you mentioned that that was kind of where you really 
picked up your chops for for glass blowing. Was that where you also met Bubble Man? Well, yeah, I was. Uh, I moved out to Seattle at the end of '97 because a good friend of mine named Ezra, who was like one of my mentors with glass had basically moved there and he was a few years ahead of me, better than me. And he had invited me to move there. Basically I was really into fish. And so I ended up going on fish tour in 98, starting on the West coast, that summer tour. And I was on tour with Jason Lee and his girlfriend at the time. And our van broke down on the way to the gorge and long story short, I got picked up. I was trying to hitchhike actually. By myself, kind of originally, because I thought three people couldn't hitchhike. And I, Mike, Mark Richardson, a.k.a. Bubble Man, picked me up. He wasn't Bubble Man yet. This is 1999. He was just whatever, some guy in a car. Picked me up. We went to the gorge. We partied. I stayed in touch with the guy, right? That's basically it. And then he lives in Canada, right? And, and I always thought Vancouver was cool. I, uh, I went to the Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam in 1995. See, actually, I went to school for documentary filmmaking. And uh, in 95, I'm going to back up a bit here to even before the Bubble Man story. In 95, I was going to school and I was a huge, you know, I was growing weed in my house, in my closet and shit like that. I was like huge High Times fan and shit like that. Read that magazine, whatever. One day I was reading in the back of High Times magazine in 95. They were doing like the Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam like they did. It was the eighth annual Cannabis Cup. It said for media, for media passes to call some number or whatever. So I literally called this number and I said, Hey, I'm a filmmaker and I'm going to be in Amsterdam doing a documentary. Can I get some free passes to your event? And they actually sent me three, uh, three free passes to the cannabis cup. So I went to the cannabis cup with a bunch of my friends and honestly, I shot tons of video, but I never produced a project. I literally, it was kind of just an excuse to go party. (laughs) And also it was my dream to go somewhere where cannabis was like accepted, you know what I mean? Like where I could just smoke weed and you could just buy it legally and it was no big deal. And like, honestly, Amsterdam blew my mind. I I mean, a lot of things. I ended up actually meeting Mark Richardson in Amsterdam in 95, but honestly, we don't even remember it. The only reason we know we met is because later he found footage of us actually talking. Like, it's kind of crazy. We both knew, like when when we met again in 98, you know, we talked and I was like, I was at the Cannabis Cup in 95 and he was like, so was I. And then later on, he discovered some footage of us having a conversation, which was kind of trippy as fuck. But uh, yeah, he mentioned a little bit about that. That Amsterdam trip, really, I met people from Vancouver. Mark was obviously probably one of them. I, I remember there was like some other like hot chicks I met from Vancouver and they were all like, yeah, in Vancouver, we smoke just like in Amsterdam. Like we don't give a shit. Like it's almost legal and whatever. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. Like somewhere in North America where you know, where weed is like super accepted. And I could just like, I always wanted to live somewhere where I could just smoke weed and not worry about it basically. You know what I mean? Right, to me, it was yeah. a big deal. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to like quit smoking weed because it's illegal or all this stuff. I'm just going to move to where it is accepted or illegal. Fuck that. Right. So honestly, when I moved to Seattle, I had my sights on Vancouver already a bit. When I first visited, I visited Seattle in October of 97 on a little reconnaissance mission to check out my buddy and see what he was doing with glass. And he was working with these amazing artists, this dude, Marcel and this dude, Pedro, this dude, Chris Dawson. They had this little studio going and I went in and visited them and it was like, their glass was next level. I'd never seen any glass like this. Shit was so sick. Blew me away. I was like, these guys are the sickest shit I've ever seen. And then I took a little road trip up to Vancouver and I thought Vancouver was the most beautiful city ever. I went to like, you know, 
whatever. It was hemp BC at the time or something like that. And like, dude was walking around throwing weed on everyone's table. I was sitting in the little cannabis cafe and I, I was just like, this is crazy. You know what I mean? Like, you know, long story short, I ended up moving to Seattle and I always had Vancouver on my mind as somewhere I kind of was interested in just because of the culture or whatever. Fast forward to Mark Richardson, you know, I basically like, like, like he said, and I've said, we met on fish store basically or whatever. And then not long after that, see, this actually leads to me actually getting the name Marble Slinger, to be honest with you, because he started hitting me up being like, Hey, I want to buy some glass off you. Right. And like, I actually kind of started using the internet to talk to Mark, to be honest with you, because I was living in Seattle and he was living in Vancouver. And like, this is at a time when cell phones were just starting to pop off. This is like 98. And like, now I don't have a landline. I have a cell phone and trying to call Canada on your cell phone back then was mad expensive. It charged you crazy. It was crazy. I mean, your cell phone bill was actually pretty expensive just domestically back then. You had to watch your minutes. You know what I mean? But calling Canada was really expensive and Mark was really getting into using the internet. So he convinced me to like start an email account. I got my first Hotmail account and it really was to talk to my homie actually here. Uh, my neighbors, I was living in Seattle. My neighbors actually were managers at a cyber cafe. So I could go to this cyber cafe and use these computers for free as much as I wanted. Like I didn't even have a computer, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. So anyway, this website was on this big marijuana growing forum was online called overgrow.com. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was like the hugest, that was the biggest marijuana site in the world at the time for people who don't know. It was mostly growers. Mark was buying my glass and posting it on that website, on that forum and selling it to people. And he was encouraging me to join. He was like, you should join this forum and check it out. I'm selling your glass there. So meanwhile, I'm just starting to use the internet for my first time. And my first thought is paranoia. I'm thinking I make like drug paraphernalia and the internet's brand new to me. And technically I know that like, you know, this is in the era of like for tobacco use only. That's how we got around it. You know, I, you know, that was the whole thing. It was like my, my pipes are for tobacco use only or whatever. That's what store. You couldn't say the word bong in a head shop. You know what I mean? None of that. So now I'm like looking at this marijuana growth forum and there's people buying my pipes and they're posting them with giant nugs in them. You know what I mean? Like just on the internet, wide open for anyone to see. I really didn't know how that was going to play out for me or anyone in general. Honestly, I was very nervous about it. Anyway, I wasn't even selling the pipes Mark was selling them. But anyway, so I decided to join the forum. And at the time, you know, I'm a glass blower and I'm making pipes. That is my main thing. But the side gig is we're also making little pendants and marbles and shit like that. And I was really into drum and bass and, and jungle. And there was a DJ from New York named DJ Soul Slinger. And I thought he was a dope DJ. He was like kind of a pioneer of drum and bass in New York. And so I needed to come up with like a screen name, like a form, like a name to be on this form. You know, no one's using their real name. So I chose Marble Slinger, partly because I felt like I didn't want to be Pipe Slinger. You know what I mean? I didn't want the government or someone, whoever, law enforcement to go on there and be like, look at this guy. He's selling, he's openly selling these pipes to people who are knowingly using them for cannabis this guy's guilty. Like he's like, it's kind of like, honestly, back, and this goes back to graffiti. It's like back in the day, graffiti writers weren't taking pictures or videos of themselves painting and putting it out there. Like you're just creating evidence for the police, right? That's exactly how I saw it. And like back when I was blowing glass back in the day, like, you know, today marijuana is basically legal. So there, you know, all sorts of people who blow glass, you know what I mean? Back then it was like, basically 
it was like lawbreakers and outlaw outlaw it was an, you were some sort of outlaw to blow glass there was no reason to do this if you weren't in that world like a lot of the people that blew glass were like growers and drug dealers on the side we didn't even look at blowing glass as like how we we're gonna make a living really it was something we did it was kind of like skateboarding it's something you did and sure you're trying to make money but like a lot of us and my friends in particular, everyone I knew who was in the scene back in the 90s, everyone had their hands in selling weed and growing weed. Like, that's what you, that was like, it was funny because pipe making was kind of your legit side. I don't even know. So anyway, I became Marble Slinger to be on this forum, overgrower.com. And that right away, when I did that, people started calling my pieces Marble Slinger Pipes. Like someone would buy one of my pieces and be like, Marbles, like honestly, it was cool because it was a very international community. So actually I was, I remember because, when I started to join the site, people started to realize I'm the guy making the pipes. People started to hit me up with messages saying, can I buy a piece? And so I was selling people pieces through the site beyond Mark. And so I had like a person in Romania hit me up to buy a pipe. I sent a pipe to Bucharest and then I sent a pipe to Ta Tanzania, to Tasmania, sorry, uh, Australia. And then I sent a pipe to someone in Italy. Um, it's places like that. It was really cool. And people would post their pieces up. And they'd be like, Marble Slinger hits Italy or something like that. Or hits, you know, and they, I got my new Marble Slinger piece. And at, at that point I realized, all right, well, I need to either change my name or that's the name because that's what people are calling it. Like, that's like my brand. That's my name now. You know what I mean? Like, so it was kind of like a fluke. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to run it. I'm going to roll with it. You know what I mean? Fuck it. It's not a bad name, whatever. I didn't really think too hard about it still though, because I didn't realize how important or far the brand might go. But at that point, I was actually learning to make these little Millefiori chips, little Murini chips, where I was able to put my name in a little marble and put it on my pieces. And my buddy Ezra had become kind of like one of the more famous pipe makers back in the day because he put these EZ chips on all his pieces. He's one of the first pipe makers to really like overtly sign his pieces where you could really tell whose piece this was, what brand it was. It was an, e it was an EZ piece or EZ piece. And so I saw that and I was like, all right, I'm going to start putting Marble Slinger and Slinger on my pieces and stuff. And really just like hammer that home. And that Mark Richardson really was like, he really, you know, he, he influenced that. I wouldn't have done that without him. You know what I mean? Like it was funny. And then, so to continue to talk about hash and Richardson actually, because he really did influence me a lot in that time, you know, before Mark, I had just smoked import hash, you know what I mean? Or Keith, we make Keith. Sure. I had Keith boxes were the rage back in the nineties. We trim our weed over a Keith box with a screen and we collect the Keith up. And you know, if you're really good at it or had really good weed, you can get some pretty white Keith, you know what I mean? That looked pretty good, but we weren't like screening hash or anything like that. And I smoked Moroccan hash and black hash, imported hash, whatever. And then, um, uh, Mark Richardson invited me up to Vancouver to hang out. So I go up to Vancouver with some of my buddies and him and his friends are dabbing this cherry hash oil they're calling it basically it was okay. red basically they had some amber stuff too that was more limited they had a lot of this cherry cherry stuff and the way they smoked it was amazing actually i don't know if mark's even oh. told the story or explained it but i'm about out this motherfucker uh, <laughs> he used to so this is how okay they had this device it actually makes sense because i'm going to give you a little hash history right here in terms of how dabbing started which it really starts up in canada and here's this history, okay? So Canadians had this thing called the mayor, they called it. I don't know if everyone called it the mayor, but that was a nickname. What it was, was it was a Coleman propane tank, one of those little camping stove propane tanks, a torch. They would take a hose clamp and a spoon from your kitchen, your average kitchen spoon. They'd hose clamp the spoon to the shaft of the torch and bend the spoon over so you could turn the torch on and you could heat. It was aimed at the bottom of the spoon. And they would take little globs of this cherry oil and they would heat up the spoon till it was red. They'd turn off the torch 
once the spoon stopped glowing, you would drop this glob of cherry oil on there and we basically chase the dragon. You'd use whatever, a straw. Sometimes we take like a Bic pen and we take out the, uh, the, the ink and everything. So it's just a tube and you would just, you would take a hoot as they call it. You know, it's funny you know, in the United States, we call it, we, we, when we smoke, we would take a hit up in Canada. They call it, you take a hoot actually just for everyone who doesn't know the difference there. Uh, it's very interesting. I lived in Canada for five years, so I've got absorbed in that culture. So anyway, I'm in Canada to set the stage. So you're taking a hoot of, uh, of cherry oil, this hash oil off this hot spoon. Yo, the first time I hit this shit, it was like I was stoned for my first time. I was <laughs> fucking, I couldn't believe how fucking ripped I was. Like, seriously, I was so ripped. It was like, I couldn't believe it. I, I found Jesus. It was like the most amazing fucking thing I ever smoked. It was next level. I loved it. I was so high. I coughed my brains out because I took it on the hottest piece of metal. You know what I mean? And I fucking loved it. And I was obsessed with it. And I didn't, I never seen anything like it before. I'm going to, I'm going to really tell you a story here. I got so into it that one of my second or third trip up there, I had to smuggle some back to the United States and smoke with people. I had to. And I was paranoid about crossing the border. The border's no joke. You don't fuck with borders. I don't usually fuck with borders at all in terms of cannabis right. problems. I had to though. So I literally bought a gram off someone up there, this cherry oil, this is like 98. And I shoved it up my ass. I shoved it in my butt. And <laughs> That's the only time in my life I've ever done it, but I boofed it and I went across the border and I successfully got it out of my butt. And wow. Like, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> That's dedication for you. If you want to talk about someone that loves smoking weed and hash, dude, like I needed to bring this down to Seattle and Bellingham and smoke with my buddies down there. I had a lot of friends that couldn't cross the border and shit. And I just, it's something like, something like this, you can't talk about it. I hate talking about shit. And I, people, they embellish everything. I smoked the sickest hash. You don't even, you know what I mean? That's great. But like, if I'm not smoking it now, it's like, you're just telling me a story. You know what I mean? I right. need to prove it to people. I needed to show them. And um, it's funny because I ended up facilitating some serious, like at that point, Marcel, who's a famous basketball, if you don't know who he is, Marcel Braun. Uh, was make, starting to make these really big, crazy sculptural bubblers that were like kind of a new thing. Like he was really putting a lot of work and more work than most people had ever put into a pipe, to be honest with you. He was really taking this stuff to the next level. He was doing all this aquatic sculptural work around these gigantic bubblers and just putting everything he had into it. And the, the work was amazing. And he wanted prices for him that honestly, none of us at the time had known anyone who bought a pipe for that much money. Like he wanted to sell it for like $2,500. We were like, holy shit, dude, who the fuck's going to buy a $2,500 bubbler? And uh, one thing led to the next thing, and I basically got Marcel to bring the bubbler up to Mark Richardson, actually. And Mark Richardson was, he's such a cannabis fanatic, he had never seen anything like it, and he just needed it. But he didn't want to spend $2,500, so he parlayed some old trade for this cherry hash oil, <laughs> Marcel. I don't know if I'm giving away too much information to those guys. They might get mad at me for telling these stories or whatever. I don't know if people are supposed to know about this stuff or whatever. But those are, Mar Richardson ended up getting a couple pieces off Marcel trading this hash oil. And like I said, down in the States, we had just never seen anything like it. You know what I mean? That was the beginning of dabbing right there. I, I moved up to Vancouver. That was like 98, 99. I was going to hang up in Vancouver, this and that. Uh, I ended up living in Bellingham for like a year. I ended up living like north of Bellingham, literally 15 minutes below the Canadian border. And I would go to Vancouver all the time. The exchange rate was amazing 
it was a dollar sixty or dollar sixty five Canadian for a dollar American. So I used to go up there and go shopping for clothes. I was spinning records. I buy records. I go to clubs. Like I, I loved hanging out in Vancouver. Like I really fell in love with that city in general. Um, it's very international, European itself, and um, I sort of yearned to move there. And then in two thousand two, I just sort of drove up there and started renting, <laughs> renting a renting a room in a house and built a studio in a garage and and just live in Canada for five years. <laughs> I don't want to incriminate myself here, but, but I just <laughs> did it. <laughs> to be honest with you. Oh, man. No, yeah. I, I appreciate I was you living, I was living in Canada for five years, and I think it was around 2004 that all of a sudden, dabs started to really pop out. Like, there was this guy in Vancouver known as Butterman. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. I haven't, no. But he was coming around with what looks like modern-day dabs. So Richardson and his buddies were smoking this, like, cherry hash oil. And they also had – sometimes they had this amber hash oil that looks a lot like an amber shatter you would have today. And their cherry stuff, too, if you let it sit, it would shatter. They would, they were, they would call it shards sometimes. or it, they were, It's funny. They were calling it globs, and the shatter were shards. Now we call it dabs and shatter. They were calling it globs and shards. But – uh this guy named Butterman popped out and he had this like yellow looking buttery shit that he would dab on basically titanium. And actually it was this dude out in Vancouver Island, Hashmaster Cut. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. Yeah. But he uh, was, okay. Hashmaster Cut. I'm giving him credit. So maybe, maybe someone else did it, but this is as far as I know, history wise, this guy was one of the guys that first kind of like, he started, he kind of invented that whole tie swing. You've heard of that way of dabbing where they have a swing and you swing. Yeah, the early, early ways, yeah. His, his sister was like a beginner novice glassblower and he got her to make these early style rigs, these ball rigs with these funnels and he would wrap this metal around there where you could swing, you could heat up the tie and put the tie pad in there. And that's the beginning of dabbing right there, like dabbing rigs and all that stuff. I honestly didn't like it that much because I was – as a glass blower and as someone who enjoyed smoking out of glass, adding metal to me was like, dude, what? We're going backwards. I was like, metal, you know what I mean? Like, I also hated the look of like this really like this all this metal wire wrapped around the shaft of this thing. I was like, that thing is ugly as fuck. But of course I would use them and it would get you high as fuck. I remember the butter man, I had a studio in Vancouver, and on commercial drive, him and some other friends of his rented out this spot and they just started retailing weed like straight out of the store. Like they didn't give a shit. They were just, they kind of created a rec dispensary illegally. It only lasted maybe six months. They got shut down, but they were just going for it. And they had $5 dabs. You could go in there and they were selling weed. And for five bucks, you can get a dab. You couldn't even, they would have an apparatus, some kind of thing with a swing arm and shit. And you give them five bucks and they would do it all for you. They would like keep the thing up swing it into place. And all you did was like, put your mouth up to the thing and take your dab or whatever. But I used to take these $5 dabs. I used to like, sometimes if I was like, if I just was desperate for weed, like I, you know, I used to, I used to buy most of my weed in the black market. Of course, that's where you bought weed. It's where I still mostly buy weed. But, um, right. um, you know, if I didn't have any weed, I could always go to this shop that was really up the street from where I work and I could buy some weed if I needed it. So once in a while I pop in there and buy weed and Fuck it. For five bucks, sometimes I was like, maybe a dab of this butter you guys got or whatever. <laughs> like, try to like rock my brain out. You know what I mean? So I remember all that stuff kind of starting to pop off. But that, I remember at that time still, there was no one was dabbing in the United States yet. You know what I mean? That wasn't popping off here at all. I moved back to the United States in 2006. 
2006 when I started filming my film, Degenerate Art. And I came down to the States. And I started traveling around the States all over the place. And it was, I was just kind of like, I'm done with Canada. I just missed the United States. I missed the glass blowing culture here. I felt cut off from it all. I like, I'm an American. You know what I mean? I just kind of was like pretty much ready to come back. I had my experience there, helped define me or whatever. And I think it was 2007 when I just finally settled into Philly, which is the first time I really took a dab in the United States. And I remember because to be honest with you, I, the people, as far as I know, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but the guys who invented the dome and the nail and that whole idea of dabbing beyond that tie pad are a couple guys that I'm friends with up in Ithaca, this dude, JC and JP Toro, basically. And those guys came out with the first primitive versions of dabbing off. I think it wasn't even, it wasn't even quartz. It was just Boro nails and coming up with using like a female joint and the dome that put over it to like kind of contain it all and make it all sort of work. And there was an event in, Philadelphia at a studio with a female flame off and JP randomly came down with this crazy like robot bong rig that he had made that had a dome and nail set up and some hash. And there were a bunch of glass blowers in Philly from all over the country, a bunch of guys from like Denver and Michigan and all over the place. I remember in particular my homie Adam G and my buddy Ubatuba and a few other guys from out of town. We all talk about this this day still that I think a lot of us who are like known glass blowers now, we, that was all our first dabs off like a dome and nail. You know, I mean, was was off this rig at this time or whatever. That was 2007. And then from there, I felt like it wasn't even until like 2000, even eight, nine, almost 10, where the rigs started to really pop off and you started to see shatter and dabs and things started to really pop off the United States. And it became, wow, this is like the wave right now is dabbing and hash oil and shatter. And it's weird. At first, I was actually a little bummed because I had already gone through my phase of like dabbing hash oil. And then I kind of skipped over a phase here. So I remember I was on fish tour in 1999 and I had a cell phone and my phone rang one day and it was Richardson. And he was like, yo, I figured it out. And I was like, what? And he's like, yo, uh, I figured out this whole way of making this pure hash using water and ice. Dude, it's going to blow your mind. I was like, word. So after I got, after fish tour, I went up to Vancouver to visit him and he showed me bubble hash for the first time. And he was like, fuck. You know, he's like, this other stuff, this, this stuff's made with solvents. He's like, fuck this stuff. He's like, this is the way, this is the way right now is, you know, we're going to do it organically. We're going to make it better or whatever. And, you know, straight up, he had like, you know, he had hung out in Amsterdam a lot. He had met Mila. You know, she's the one who came out with the isolator, the two bag set. She's the original person to develop something, you know, an, an idea of water hash. What Mark did is, is basically bring that to North America. I think the most important thing Mark did was not even create bubble bags, but be an online presence and preach. He basically would make, I mean, I hung out with him a lot back in the day in Vancouver. And this is what the guy would, this is his life, right? You go to his house, he'd be like, yo, help me make this bubble hash. And you'd make this hash with him, right? And he'd be like, all right, bro, we're going to go downtown to like the pot shops or whatever events going on. And we're going to smoke hash with everyone we can smoke. We're just going to show them how good this hash is. He's like, and, the, and then we you know what, then I'm going to teach them how to make it. And they're going to make it. And he's like, the more, and he seriously was on this mission. It was funny. I remember him even telling me back in the day, remember when he started to get really good at it. And I remember like going up there and making some hash with him. There was a strain, the Renee. He started to figure out these certain strains that would make this like really amazing hash. Like that just produced, that would dump basically. And he was concentrating, trying to convince people he knew to grow these strains and hook them up with this material and whatever. 
And we were making this, this hash that was just actually mind blowing. It was like fucking white and melting and crazy. And like, you're trying to smoke it on a screen and just drips through the screen and whatever. And I remember Mark looking at me and being like, you know, one day this kind of stuff's going to be available everywhere. And people are going to spend like easily a hundred dollars a gram for this. And I kind of laughed at him. I was like, no one's spending a hundred dollars a gram for hash, bro. Come on. Like I'm telling you right now, I, I personally give him a lot of credit. Just even just start with me. I mean, I don't know how much he necessarily, what his influence is on the scene. Everyone has their own personal thing, but in my life, he influenced me a lot because he made these predictions to me that if this was, if it was like the stock market and I took it seriously, I would have been a cajillionaire by now. If I listened to things he predicted or prophesized about, he really, he knew what he was talking about. He was ahead of the curve and that's what he was doing. Basically, you know, like I lived in Vancouver for a good five years we were very good friends, spent a lot of time together. We just both love smoking. You know what I mean? You, smokers gravitate towards each other. It's what we like to do with our time. You know what I mean? And if you're a connoisseur, you meet up, you smoke out of cool pipes, you smoke good weed, you talk about the weed and the pipes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, um, you know, I, so when, when, you know, fast forward now to when like shatter and stuff like that, oil started to like pop off in the United States. I was like kind of stoked on, it. I was smoking it myself, but already I was like, this isn't it at all. Like it's solventless is what's it like, you know what I mean? And when solventless first started to pop off in the United States, I was so happy. I was like, finally, uh, cause at first I was like, what is it just too hard for them to make bubble? It's not economical. Like it's so much easier to like, just process this material through these extractor units and come out with like, you know, weight basically or whatever. And, yeah. um, and I, and I felt like, uh, you know, I, I knew that, 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 that like water hash and, and just solventless created hash was definitely the way. I mean, the reason we love smoking weed and cannabis is because it's a plant and it's organic. You know what I mean? Cocaine comes from the coca plant, but it has to be manufactured to become cocaine. You know what I'm saying? Like, so like, I don't know. There's a big difference between organic material and processed material. And if you're going to process something to concentrate it, especially if it starts organic and that's like kind of the point you're into it for, then you might as well go with the organically processed product. I mean, the whole argument about using solvents and then trying to prove to people that there are no more solvents in there is the <laughs> dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Come on, dude. You know how you prove there's no solvents in there? You never use them in the first place. I mean, to me, it backs up to what I said in the beginning of this podcast. Cannabis to me is about consciousness, mindfulness. You know what I mean? It's about thinking. It's, a, it, you know, it's not something you just capitalize on like some major corporation brand and, and try to like, you know, sell them like marble cigarettes to people, some fucking swag rolled up all convenient or something like that. I mean, that's, that's what I'm worried about in this world is corporate weed straight up. I'm more than, I, I keep thinking I want to make a corporate weed sucks shirt and just like give them away or something like that. Like just so people wear them at events and stuff like that. Cause like, I get branding and I do branding. I have a brand. I have a clothing. The brand's based on nothing though, really. It's just not nothing, but it's just like, you know, I'm not really selling you anything but the shirt. Like there's no, there's nothing else behind it. It's actually based on freedom to me actually, or whatever is another thing. But yeah, I, 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 uh, I gotta say, I, I love black market. <laughs> I support the black market. Yeah. Everyone out there on the black market doing your thing. You got my mad respect. Keep doing that. I actually, my dream one day is to open like a, like a cannabis social club. Have you been to Barcelona before? I haven't, but yeah, I've, I've been to Amsterdam before. So I'm the coffee shops I'm familiar with, but I've been yeah, dying to go similar. out there, man. I yeah. kind of, for some reason, I've only been to Amsterdam once and it was when I was 21, but I've been to Barcelona a good, like maybe six times in the last like eight years or something. So I've been hanging out there a lot. 
I often have gone on during Spanibus or whatever, but they have like a whole cannabis social club scene. And when you experience it, you're kind of like, why can't this exist in the United States? Like it's so actually like, I really like it from what I understand there. It's kind of like a loophole where it's legal to smoke and sell weed privately. So basically I think you can't like technically grow it and bring it there, but then they can sell it while while it's at the club. And yeah, it's a weird little gray loop kind of system, but there's some weird loopholes. I don't know, but you know what? That's to me, that's my dream right there is I'd like to like, I want to open my own. I love socializing and smoking and with like the laws, the legal nature of, 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 smoking of, of cannabis we haven't been able to do that up until recently you know what i mean right. so to me that's the dream like i'm so excited that in my lifetime like they just legalized it in new york city literally like today or whatever or yesterday or whenever i just saw the news literally this morning or something or last night and that's where i'm from and i'm like boom like i want to open the dopest fuck i want to open a spot where i've got like kind of like you know those like kind of like Actually, you know what? I can't give away all my ideas in the podcast. <laughs> no worries. I want to open a dope spot. I'm not giving away all my ideas. My game isn't all for free, actually. <laughs> Let me open it first. But I, <laughs> I go off on tangents here. I get inspired. I don't even know what we're talking about. Hash and weed. That's what your podcast is about. So I like talking about that shit. That is my life, like just as much as glass or more, to be honest with you. You can see I've been smoking the whole time. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And you were telling me, I think maybe while we took a break that when you do smoke, it actually makes you a lot more social and a lot more talkative than you typically are. Yeah. I mean, I could be a talkative individual. I like socializing. So, you know, I'm not trying to say I'm necessarily quiet too often, but, uh, I have my phases or whatever, but yeah, exactly. Like it, it, it inspires me to, uh, to conversate or whatever. Um, and then at the same time, it might be a little detrimental because you see, you ask me a question, I just kind of end up rambling, but I think that's probably the point anyway of like, my blunt's falling apart. That's probably the point anyway of a podcast for the most part. You know what I mean? It's just to have a conversation and, you know, not necessarily give you some yes and no answers to. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah. I mean, the questions are, are questions, but the answers are usually more interesting, to be honest. And, you know, I'm curious, you mentioned uh, taking your first dive with Mark and then kind of seeing the progression, but still believing in solventless so I'm going to assume that I know the, the answer to this, but do you primarily smoke solventless hash or rosin? Yes. I pretty much at this point, exclu- almost exclusively. I'm not a complete snob. I'm not a purist or something. It was like, I refuse to ever, you know what I mean? If I'm in a social situation and someone insists they've got some kind of bomb shit that looks amazing, I might, as a courtesy, hit it. Or someone's like, oh, I got this rolled up blind and it's got some oil in it. I'm not going to be like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not like a vegetarian who doesn't eat meat or something like that, where I'm like, I smoke this and I don't smoke that. But no, I'm not into it, really. Like, I pretty much will say, don't get me wrong. I'm also not just going to say yes to any random shatter you show me and shit like that. Right. And so- To be honest with you, I've kind of switched over to mostly smoking flour. Recently, in the last like bunch of years, I find if I take dabs all day, it just slows me down a little bit. It's a little, it's a little more than I need. I actually lo- always like to have a head stash of rosin, and I prefer to smoke it more kind of at the end of my day. When I'm pretty much done for my day, I've been smoking a flower all day, and now I want to like relax and watch a movie or something like that and like kick it up a notch. That's when I'll like hit 
um, some rosin or some melt. I actually almost like melt more than rosin, but I mean, I like both, you know what I mean? Um, I kind of prefer to probably get the melt and make the rosin myself or just smoke the melt as opposed to get it pre-rosined and packaged and all that shit. Yeah. I'm, I'm a milk guy too. I mean, I, I also smoke rosin and I really enjoy it, but if, if I could pick one or the other, I, I would go with melt as well. And that's always an interesting topic to discuss with people, but it's funny that you say that you, that you squish because I was just talking to uh, my homies from powers plates who are one of our sponsors and they're cool dudes, but he was telling me that he was hanging out. I don't know if you know the guys from like the main circle in Oregon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was hanging. Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, Gong and those guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think Gong and sleek and Eli and, yeah, those are, those guys are great. yeah. So yeah, he was just saying he was hanging out with them recently and they were pressing rosin, uh, in the, in the studio and they were like, Oh yeah. And he's like, what are you pressing it on? And he's like, Oh man, we're doing, um, like a hair straightener. And he's like, bro, like what? Like, cause there's a lot of people that still actually like the hair straightener for like personal, but he's like, let me hook you up with a set of power splates, bro. And like, you guys have this in the studio and do it. So I'm curious, like what, what are you pressing on? Do you, you do use kind of hair straightener tech or? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm uh, not super professional and I'm not like I, someone kind of hooked me up with a rosin press at one point, which I didn't get that adept at using it. Maybe it was too much pressure. I don't know. My buddy, uh, Jeezy makes these, uh, makes these hair straighteners. And like when I'm, when I, honestly, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I probably usually get other people to do it for me. Yeah. I'm yeah. That's cool. Man. Better at it than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, when the whole thing first started to pop off the idea of making rosin in general, I was doing it a lot and it mostly was hair straighteners in the studio, but yeah, I never really invested in any fancy equipment and anything like that. Uh, and like I said, I kind of just like roll weed all day. So that's yeah, kind of fair. like working my working mode or whatever and then smoke it at home. So cool, man. I think this would be a good point for us maybe to take a quick smoke break. Shout out to our homies and main sponsors, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. That's the number 100. We love working with Rosin Evolution because outside of being the best rosin bags in the game, they really are one of the best companies in cannabis in general. They're reliable, their products are top-notch, and they excel at showing their customers how much they appreciate them by always going the extra mile to make sure that they're happy, whether that's making you custom bags, getting your order to you in the time frame that you need, or continuing to innovate and build upon their already top-of-the-line bags. Rosin Evolution is always looking out for you and their bags provide you peace of mind, which is nice at any moment, but especially nice when your bag is full of something worth more than gold, literally. So if you need rosin bags, hash wash bags, or anything rosin, go to rosinevolution.com and use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710, to save 5% on your entire order with Rosin Evolution at rosinevolution.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Well, let's shift a little bit. Let's talk about degenerate art. You know, I've mentioned to you a few times that because I'm not like huge on the glass scene, I wasn't really aware of it for a long time. And it wasn't until I interviewed Sam from Mile High Melts that he mentioned watching the documentary and being influenced by it and being a fan of yours. And it was recently that I watched it. And 
kind of that in combination with talking to Mark and you coming up in that sense was what prompted me to kind of reach out and see if you wanted to talk, you know, like I told you about your career and, and kind of really how it all goes hand in hand and degenerate art uh, was really the way that I, I got to know you. So let's discuss the film a little bit and let's discuss some of the challenges that you faced because although you had gone to film school, I believe I've heard you say that you hadn't actually produced like a full length film or how you may call that. Yeah, exactly. No, um, you know, what I was talking about earlier, I was talking about a spectrum and I was talking about doing something for the sake of doing it and then doing something for money. That film was a big leap of me making a change in my life. I was actually pretty depressed. I, uh, I started making that film in 2006. I was about nine years into my career and I was at a point where I was kind of a little bit bored and I, I just didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't making a lot of money. Basically, I was at a point where I wasn't having a ton of fun doing it and I wasn't making a lot of money doing it. So I was like, well, why am I doing this? You know what I mean? And part of my inspiration to make the film was because I was thinking about quitting. And I thought, well, I've been doing this for like nine or 10 years. I can't just quit without having nothing to say about it. I should at least like put out something. And uh, basically, I don't know. I, that combined with seeing that movie Style Wars, I was inspired and got to a point where I was like, you know what? I really want to do this. And I said, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell everyone I meet that I'm going to make this movie. And someone that I tell it to is going to have a way of helping me out. And that's kind of what happened, basically, is I just started telling people uh, online and offline, I'm going to make this movie. This is what I'm going to do. And uh, I ended up getting some early sponsorship by some guys in Vancouver who helped me. They basically bought some film equipment and loaned it to me and sponsored me a little bit of money. And um, yeah, I started driving around filming people interviewing people it actually i really sucked at first i started i went down to marcel and jason lee because there were two guys that i knew were important in the scene and i knew them so i was like let me start with these two guys because they're really important and i was probably i probably filmed about 50 hours with these guys and it was pretty much garbage and it was all me learning actually learning how to interview them learning how to film them everything kind of i actually went to school for film where I did 16 millimeter film. I didn't even do video production. So now I'm using a video camera. I didn't even understand the aspect ratio. I didn't understand white balancing. I didn't even, I was just like a stoner pipe maker dude who decided I was going to make a movie. And I had, I had the theory in my head of what the movie should be, but I had to kind of relearn how to produce it or whatever. I had to make a lot of mistakes. As I started to do it, I realized it was going to take me a lot longer to make than I didn't even know what I was even opening, what kind of Pandora's box I was opening at this moment. But the next thing I know, I was like, well, I, I interview this guy. I got to interview that guy. If I go here, I got to go there. Right. And um, it was I kind of- I can relate with that. It was a roller coaster of emotion, to be honest with you. Because after a year of making the movie, I felt like I wasn't even, I had like, you know, a hundred hours of footage or something. And I still wasn't even, I, had, I didn't even know how I was going to edit it. I didn't know anything. I just kept filming. I just kept knowing there was more people I needed to film. And it was like really like one of those things where I, I like went through a lot of emotions with it. There was times where I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to do this, if I'm ever going to put this together or whatever. I ended up moving back to, I moving to Philly and I linked up with um, a good friend of mine that I went to film school with. And I was like, what are you doing these days? And he said, I make documentary films. Like he was working for public access, PBS basically. 
making like shorts and stuff, but he was still active doing it, you know? And so I said, I'm making this movie and I need you to edit it. And he said, nah, right, right away. He just kind of said, no. Nah. And I was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like, let me show you what I got. Let me, he didn't know anything about the pipe scene. You know, we knew each other from college and then kind of had part ways after that. We hadn't seen each other in like a decade. So I was like, let me, I, get, I was like, let me give you 10 tapes. I'll give you 10 tapes, watch these tapes and then come back to me. And he came back to me and was like, holy shit, dude, this is interesting. And just out and of curiosity, I, you gave him 10. How many did you have at that point? Probably a hundred or maybe even more. Uh, I have no idea. In the end, I probably shot about 250 hours over the course of about five years. Because I worked on the film from 2006 and we put it, I basically finished it at the end of 2011. And literally we were editing before the very first public screening, we were editing the week before, you know? So up until the last minute we were editing and, you know, some of the footage in that first screening was only months old um, when we first screened it. Like the footage of Buck, stuff like that at the end. But uh, yeah, that, I, I don't know. If something something kicked, kicked inside me at some point. I got really gung-ho after years of slowly piecing it together. I started to feel like I saw end of, a light at the end of the tunnel. I actually had sort of developed a production line of glass that I sort of taught my apprentice. I, I basically got an apprentice and she had gone to school for blowing glass but didn't know how to do like lamp working, like, like pipe making. So I kind of taught her how to make a bunch of items and I sort of had a production line that I kind of had an employee making where it was the first time where I was able to like kind of sort of like actually separate where I had this commercial art I was making where I could go to these trade shows and sell this stuff and make a profit to pay her. And then I had enough side time to go edit my film with my editor and, and, and finish that up or whatever. So I kind of got, there's kind of a period of my glasswork where I kind of put out a very kind of per, like, I didn't do a lot of super crazy unique stuff. I sort of had this line uh, my apprentice, her name was Devadita. And so there's a whole line of pieces out there. They're, they're my more affordable line of work. That, that line of work is what kind of helped me make my movie, like selling, selling, selling those pieces or whatever enabled me to like, you know, kind of fall back from spending all my time blowing glass and like finish the film off. And then the first time I showed the film was at a random, like one-off trade show that a glass trade show or head shop trade show that happened in Atlantic city which is funny, I didn't plan on that being my first showing. That When the guy asked me to show the film there, I thought I would have finished the film way before that and maybe have shown it already. But it ended up being the first showing, and it was a really emotional experience, to be honest with you. Um, in my years of creating pipes, I've never made something that affected people or affected an audience the way that movie affected people. I don't know if I ever will actually make anything else in particular that will affect people the way that movies affected people. And honestly, every once in a while or like, you know, semi-regularly, I guess I do have people who send me DMs on Instagram and stuff and they'll say that movie has influenced them in some positive way. It got them into blowing glass or encouraged them or they showed it to their parents or something like that to explain it, which is actually funny. It's one of the main reasons I made that movie was to explain it to my parents. You know, my parents are not necessarily into cannabis culture. My dad doesn't smoke at all, never smoked weed, doesn't understand it. My mom is pretty chill about it or whatever. But in a weird way, I kind of made that film. And it was great that I partnered with the guy that I edited the movie with. We were a great team because I made sure that the film had street credibility, that someone who was in the scene and had knowledge of the scene was like, yeah, that I co-signed this. Like, this is like really the way it is. But he helped make me make a film that could appeal to a wider audience. 
where I wouldn't make something that was so narrow minded that you had to understand the pipe scene to appreciate it. You know what I mean? Something that could maybe like, and you know, actually like one of the most, my most proud moments of my career, honestly, was getting accepted into the South by Southwest film festival, showing it there. And film festivals in a sense are like a marketing ground for movies. And then I got picked up by a distributor in New York who uh, helped me get on Netflix for three years, basically put the film on all the different platforms. It was on iTunes and Amazon and all that stuff or whatever. And it got like a pretty wide reach, um, especially when it was on Netflix. And uh, it was cool because that was like right at the point where Netflix was becoming the main way people watched film. I think even Amazon video was kind of a brand new platform. I remember like they got me on Netflix and they're like, yeah, we're going to put you on this Amazon. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Amazon, whatever. I just, to me, that was like another platform, but like Netflix was just really starting to pop off. So I kind of got lucky actually, because it's really not easy to get on Netflix. And people ask me all the time, how'd you get your movie on Netflix? And it's like, honestly, I didn't get my movie on Netflix. Someone else did. You know what I mean? But what it is, is you got to go through those, you know, the film industry is that it's an industry. You have to get involved in that industry. I mean, and that as an outsider, the only way to get involved is to be enter into a film festival, unless you know someone, you know what I mean? Which is so, you know, kind of bada bing, bada boom. I got sort of lucky to be honest with you, even South by Southwest, there was something like 16 documentaries chosen the year I was in there. And I, I talked to the director of the pro of the, of the festival that year. Uh, personally, she came and talked to me and, you know, welcomed me or whatever. And, uh, she said, Oh, we got like 2000, 3000 entries or something like that. And I was like, Whoa, like I, I kind of, yeah, like, it's a lot, you know, my film's all right, but like, you know, I don't know. It's, I see flaws when I watch it, you know, it's not a perfect movie. It's not like amazing filmmaking or anything like that. I'll be honest with you. I literally was just trying to make propaganda straight up. I mean, when I went to school, I studied documentary filmmaking. And besides the actual production aspect, I really studied the theory of, of, of documentary filmmaking. And the first thing we learned day one was that all films are propaganda of some sort. That basically by choosing what is on the screen and what is not on the screen and, for how, and how everything, what the order of it is and how it's shown and, and the emo, you know, what music you use or don't use, all these decisions you make are going to like, you can make someone love a character or hate a character. You can make someone love a movement or hate a movement, you know what I mean? Based on how you present it to them, you know what I mean? And, and like I said, kind of in the beginning of this podcast, like marijuana culture and pipe making, I felt was a demonized thing. Like I thought pipe making was awesome, but I felt like no one knew about it. And when you talked about making pipes back in the day, you sounded like a fucking some kind of stoner loser or something like that, that no one would take you seriously. And honestly, I kind of come from New York and I used to go to museums and foreign films and, I, I kind of take some of that stuff seriously. I like art and music and I think about it. I, I did go to college and like study art history and things like that. And I'm like, you know, I like put a lot of effort in this stuff. And actually the, the dudes I'm learning from, some of those guys didn't even graduate from high school and they might not be institutional academic about their art, but these guys are teaching me a lot about relationships of form and color and proportions and you know all sorts of things that like it took me a lot longer to learn than some of these like high school dropouts you know what i mean who were like really naturally talented um so i don't know i felt this personal mission with making that film people ask me all the time are you going to make a sequel no i'm not going to make a sequel i've kind of i've danced around that for a long time it's going to come out and put something say it i'm not going to make a sequel i would like to make more films but i'll never make a sequel and the reason is this 
What drove me to make the first movie was passion to tell a story. At this point, there's a new story. And I feel like it's someone else kind of needs to tell that. Someone who's more like maybe started around when the generative art came up and now they're excited from what's happened. Because that's, to me, if I even made another movie, it'd probably be to tell more of the story of the old school. Because if you think about it, Instagram and social media, they're kind of a day-to-day documentation of what's going on in the scene now. Like, sure, I think someone should and could make a really great movie about what's happened since Degenerate Art up until the scene now. You know what I'm saying? That being said, a lot of people still don't know the history of the scene. You know, a lot of people still don't know about what it was like to be a pipe maker when weed was like totally illegal and we didn't have Instagram to like, to show off the shit or like people didn't consider pipes quite as a status symbol as much as they do today. Although I'll argue they kind of always consider pipes a status symbol. That's why growers and, and ballers and you know what I mean? And like drug dealers would come by our studios and like buy these expensive pipes from us. They were like making a bunch of money and they wanted to show off and be cool guys with their like crazy pipe. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like driving a fancy car or whatever. Yeah, it can it can be a status symbol, I suppose. You know, if if you look at it that yeah, way, yeah. I or, mean, I try to look at it like that. You know what I mean, or whatever. But you know, unfortunately, that's like a, a sort of fate of art and everything like that. And when people are trying to understand value and stuff like that, you know, it's like I, I don't know. You know, there's there's pros and cons to where the scene's gone. To me, you know what I mean. In a lot of ways, I I like where the scene has gone. And 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 what I'll say about that is that. I've always thought that the person who made the pipe should come into play on how, what the value of the piece is. You know what I mean? Because it's like this. Back in the day, there were a certain group of cats that came out with a style, wig, making these wigwag pieces, right? Next thing you know, there's like a thousand cats replicating this style. The guys that innovated the style and pioneered it, their work should be the most valuable and coveted. You know what I mean? Because they're the ones... like. Coming up with an idea, that's the hard part. Like, glass is a mechanical craft. You can almost train any monkey to just turn glass. If you give them instructions on how to blow glass, you're like, hey, turn it until it's this point, and then stretch it a little bit, and then blow it, and then do this, and then do that, and do this, and do that, and then it'll be at this point. Someone can eventually learn that through repetition. Just like, you know what I mean? Like, just repeating. That's what it is. That's what glass blowing actually is as a craft. Honestly, the science of it is repetition. So then once you understand the craft and the science and the repetition of blowing glass, what are you going to do with it? You know what I mean? Are you going to just like go with the conventions that are laid out before you? Or are you trying to add to the conversation? You know what I'm saying? Like, so, you know, it's interesting because the more the internet's come into play, like I remember back in the day, in like 2004, 2005, the internet started to really pop off for glass. And really it was all centered around this website called glasspipes.org which was like a daily website where all these glass pipe artists would have a gallery and they would um, post pictures of their latest work. And everyone, people were often updating it daily or weekly or whatever. And you could comment. It was almost early social media for pipe maker because you could comment on the pieces. People could feature the pieces. There was like a feature page. It was like the homepage where all the new stuff would pop up in chronological order. And then people could feature it. So these feature categories are on the side. You see it was featured. And then they had this logarithm eventually where they were ranking the galleries. And so every day the logarithm would change and someone would be number one on glass pipes. You'd be ranked number one. Like it was almost like, I looked at it like tennis, like in the world of tennis, they have rankings, like a seating. It's like, I'm ranked number one. I'm ranked four. I'm ranked 73. I'm ranked four. You know what I mean? There was, so the, on glass pipes, there was a top hundred. 
And, you know, if you were active enough and you put up shit, you got comments and all that kind of stuff, you'd be up in that top hundred somewhere. And then that changed, you know what I mean? And certain people would dominate, like certain people were popular and they'd be in the top 10 all the time and someone would be number one for a while. And then people started to even crack the algorithm. I remember at some point people were secretly talking amongst each other. They're like, hey, you have to like put a caption under every one of your photos and like make sure you label every one of your photos. And if you do that, it actually makes you, it'll make you bump up. It'll bump you up in the algorithm and shit like that. And that's actually like the early days of people like giving a shit about almost clout on the internet for what they're doing. Like it's beyond. And then not only that, we got this other effect. Check this out. So back in the day when I first started blowing glass pipes, right? You just, I was in my studio making glass. I had no reference for what anyone else was doing, right? The only people I could look at were the other guys in my studio. If another guy in my studio was making something, I could like look at how he was making it. Or even furthermore, I could just see the final piece and I could look at it in my hand, analyze it. And maybe I'd like something about what he was doing and I could get influenced by it, right? But that's it. Now, you've got people posting pictures on the internet of their pieces and they're posting multiple angles. So some cat posts a piece of a new an idea he's got for a pipe. And it's pretty cool and it's kind of different than what we've all seen, right? But he posts five angles of this piece and everyone's looking at it. And now you're in your studio and you can like reference this. You can look back and forth. And a month or two later, there's five other guys who are making pieces that kind of look like this one cat's piece because they have this reference point. And what we had started with this homogenization of the pipe scene where like before the internet, it was crews. Like I had a crew in Seattle. There'd be a crew, Snodgrass had his crew. There was this crew of guys of Banjo and Shad and Chad and Andy and these other guys. They had a crew, right? And they were like, they were like crews. There was like a crew in Ithaca, New York, this buttermilk crew. And there were crews of guys that would get together and they were like friends and they would blow glass together and share knowledge and stuff like that and kind of learn together. And so like sometimes you find a little like the homogenization within a crew because they're all sharing information and ideas and pushing each other in certain directions. But the scene still had a diversity. As soon as the internet came into play, Everyone's able to have these references for other people's pipes. You just start to see more biting, for better or for worse. There's, there's a, there's a, it's funny because no matter what I say about anything, I always, I'm a Libra. I always see this positive and negative side to it. In some senses, it might have taken the scene further faster. Now, you've got all these people who are playing out an idea to a point where now it gets played out so much faster. If you've got one guy who's playing with a concept, it's going to take him a while to play that out. If you've got 100 heads who are all tackling a concept, they're all going to run with it in so many ways to a point where eventually it gets played out and we move on to the next thing or something like that. But that's how innovation, things go faster and move faster forward. You know what I'm saying? So there's been all these phases in the glass pipe scene that I've witnessed in my 24-year career. You know, when I first started out, it was color-changing pipes. And then eventually in the early 2000s, the color companies started to actually come out with really cool, opaque, bright crayon colors that never existed for borosilicate. Because the type of glass we do is always rooted in science. It was used for scientific purposes. They didn't need color. No art was made out of it. Art glass was made with this other softer glass out of a furnace, and they had all the colors. Now, you can't use that soft glass to, to dab or to smoke weed because the lighter gives enough heat off that it'll actually shock that glass. Because not to get too technical, the coefficient of expansion is higher. So borosilicate being a lab type glass that you can put a Bunsen burner under it to like, you know, heat some chemicals up. It can take lighting it over and over the lighter or even like if it's going to get torched a little bit, 
it can kind of take that kind of heat and not crack. So that's why we use borosilicate glass. So to back up a little bit and give some history to people who don't understand, borosilicate glass was never used for anything artistic until pipes came around. So the idea of making color or creating a lot of the tools that we use now to blow glass, to, to create these pipes are, were created because of the demand of pipe makers. You know what I mean? Like there was no other reason to create all this colored borosilicate glass. So to go back to what I was saying and seeing different trends, when I first started blowing glass, first like literally three years, I'd say, everything was like an inside out. Inside out, I, when I first started, it was color changing. Then it was inside out. You had to do your patterns on the inside of the tube and it would magnify it. And like that was the cool thing. That was a headpiece is inside out. Then it was these opaque colors making these bright, colorful rainbow pieces because now we had these new colors we never had before. But these pieces didn't even color out. So now, but now everyone started experimenting with these different wigwag styles and all of a sudden this whole other style started popping off, you know? And then from there, it's like trend after trend. Then glass on glass started to pop off. Around 2004, 2005, people started to really get into like roar bongs. And next thing you know, everyone's like, yo, this whole glass on glass thing is the shit. Like that's the coolest way to smoke. The idea of this glass on glass connection. And so now like American companies started making bongs like that and individual pipe makers started getting like the actual machine joints and adding them to their bubblers and shit like that. You know what I mean? Um, and this was getting away from one of the things that you mentioned you didn't like at first about dabbing, which was the bringing in of metal. Right. Well, yeah. You're saying glass on glass enabled that to get away from metal? Correct. Exactly. Yes, I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Um, so when dabbing first started, what were your options, really? You know what I mean? I mean, even like uh, with bubble hash, we used to like Mark Richardson or whatever, and through him, we used to put it on a screen and smoke it through a bubbler. At the time, when I lived in Vancouver, glass pipes and smoking weed out of a pipe was not popular at all in Canada when I lived there. It was very American. It's crazy because it's like Canada's right there, but up in Canada when I lived there, everyone took weed and they rolled it with tobacco, to be honest with you, or they were just smoke joints. There was two camps. There was people who were like old school European. They would smoke splits. They would smoke weed or hash mixed with tobacco like a lot of Europeans do. And then there was people who didn't like tobacco and they would just roll joints basically. But not a lot of people seem to like smoking weed out of pipes. And then where I came in is when Bubble Man started kind of like wanting to smoke a lot of bubble hash he wanted to smoke it through a water pipe. And so I would make a bubbler and he would smoke it through a bubbler on a screen. And then I started making like me and my friends got into making double bubblers and triple bubblers. And I started making, I made at one point, I made a four, a quad bubbler and a quintupler. And I made a sex tupler at one point, which was just ridiculous. But that was me trying to like, honestly, bubble man encouraged that phase of my glass blowing. He was really into these multi chain. He was buying most of those pieces from me and reselling them actually. And that's what he wanted. He was like, let me get these doublers and triplers and make it with more. And he just loved it. The more water, we were trying to figure out a cooler, more fun way to smoke this hash and filter it through the water or whatever. But that was kind of the way that was my market. When I lived in Vancouver was making these like multi-chamber bubblers and selling them to people who wanted to smoke hash on a screen. Even the people I knew, I personally grew up mostly smoking weed out of pipes. So I, before I moved to Canada, like I just would pack a bunch of weed and a bubbler and smoke it. I would have a daily driver, like a bubbler. I have some dry pipes too, but smoking a bubbler, that was the coolest thing. Like when I first got in the glass, that was the coolest pipe you wanted. Like when I first, when I first discovered bubblers, I was like, that's the dopest shit. It's a handheld bong. It's like a bong in your hand. Like you, I don't even know. I, I was, it blew me away when I first saw a bubbler. I couldn't even believe it. 
Um, cause I love bongs. I used to collect when I was in high school, I had like plastic graphics bongs. You know what I mean? So I really come from that whole evolution, old school, you know, I, in, in high school, I smoked metal prototypes, metal pipes. You could take Remember we used to like take a, a, a nug and put it in the pipe with the resin chamber and you smoke like a couple eights through it and then take out this resin coated piece of weed that you thought was awesome. Cause it was coated. In <laughs> smoke it. She was gross as fuck. I don't even remember what I was talking about. I think what I was trying to illustrate is that in my long ass career of old head style, being into pipes, I've seen a lot of phases. I haven't even got to the dabbing phase, glass on glass dabbing. Like it's crazy. There's a whole timeline I've seen of like trends. You know what I mean? Of like what people are, how people are using glass, what they're using it for the accessories that come with it. You know, I saw the dome and nail come. Then we saw that go. We saw the banger show up. You know what I mean? Um, it was dabbers and dishes. Now it's turt pearls and slurper marbles or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, yeah, it's definitely evolved, man. And I think it's going to keep evolving. And you know, the, the hash is kind of right along there with it as well. And, you know, one of the things that I find curious is as a result of the film, it's seemed to influence a lot of people that have, that's created a, a much bigger glass blower population, let's call it, which was part of your motivation for making the film as well. But has it worked too well? Are there too many glass blowers? Can there be too no, many glass blowers? I think in the end, I think it should, I, I think I'm down for it to be just like skateboarding where at some point everyone kind of tries it and maybe some people get more serious than other people. Maybe some people make that a career out of it. Some people don't. But no, I don't, I mean, personally, I don't give a shit. I don't really feel, there is a lot of competition in the glass pipe world. I don't care about it personally. I have my own lane. I do my own thing. I don't care about competing with anyone except myself. I learned a long time ago. The way I actually evolved as a, as a maker, as a glass pipe maker was working with people that were light years better than me. And I remember back in the day working next to a guy like Jason Lee, who's a very famous old school pipe maker. And he would make these big, sick bubblers. And I remember looking at his pieces and thinking, and I used to think his pieces basically were the coolest pieces you could possibly make. And I'd hold one in my hand and I'd look at it and I'd see how big it was and how many sections were in it and how clean it was. And I'd think to myself, I'm never going to make as big and clean and nice of a piece. I'm never going to be able to make a piece. I'm never going to compete with this. But you know what I just, that, that inspired me is what I ended up doing is trying to just come up with my own thing. Instead of, make, instead of like being like, this is the coolest thing to do and I'm going to try to like compete with it and make one just like it but cooler or as cool, I just went left and did something different. Started sandblasting images on pipes or something like that. I was just like, I don't know, I'll just do something different. Like, you know what I mean? And that's what like gave me legs and actually inspired me. I started actually sandblasting images on pipes around the same time I started making the movie. And that was what I was saying is I was actually entering or in the middle of kind of a depression of like I was broke and uninspired and not sure of like why I was doing what I was doing or, 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 or anything. You know what I mean? Like I was really, really bummed out about everything. I, I was not stoked on blowing glass and I, and I hated everything, honestly. I knew I needed to make a change and I was trying to look myself in the mirror and figure that out. And uh, yeah, I just kind of found myself through pursuing things, by like really following passion 
as opposed to anything else. You know what I mean? Like you just got to like be honest with yourself or whatever. Um, but no, I, I uh, definitely, it's, it's interesting because the, the degenerate art, if you look at it, it's a total piece of propaganda because at the end of the movie, the way it ends, it's like, it makes you say, when you watch Style Wars, the graffiti documentary, no matter how you feel about graffiti at the end, you want to go out and do it. If you thought you wanted to do it, you definitely want to do it. Right. If you already wanted to do it, you have to go out and do it after you watch that movie. If you didn't like graffiti, you're actually considering it on a different level after this. I'm telling you. And I, I like that. And I definitely did that on purpose. That's very conscious. And at the end, the way Buck's even talking, he's kind of like, he's kind of telling his story and he's sort of saying stuff like, you know, I see these guys they are hanging out they're listening to music. He's, he's talking about how he wanted to be a part of that. And then he shows you these impressive pieces he's made. And the note that the movie ends on is kind of like, it's kind of sucking you in as the audience member saying, I want to be a part of that too. I want to do that. Or I want, or I want a piece of that. You know what I mean? And I definitely did it on purpose. And so, you know, I always thought back in the day that, if everyone who smoked weed could stand up at the same time and just admit they smoked weed and just be proud of it, we would just legalize it. And you know what that took? That took the internet and social media for that to finally happen. At this point in time, anyone will post a video of themselves smoking weed, their grow room, their sack, their jar, whatever it is, their hash. No one gives a shit. And there's a, I mean, maybe Instagram kind of tries to police it a little bit, but you know, go on there. There's no shortage of weed content on there and i think in the sense that's actually what's led to the legalization of weed is is how it just gets so normalized to a point where people just don't give a shit and then conversely people are like well let's just capitalize on this you know what i mean you know corporations or government corporations run government so you know that's what it takes it takes corporations finally like you know what we see a lane how we're going to make money let's influence the government to legalizing it so that the lane's open for us to take advantage of that you know what i mean like that's basically as far right. as i correct me if i'm wrong or whatever. But like, again, uh, am I worried that degenerate art has created too many pipe makers? Hell no. Let's keep creating pipe makers. Like that's the beauty of it. That's the, you know, the more the merrier. It's great. I love the expression of it. There's so many different people who get into pipe making for so many different reasons. Not everyone does it for the same reason. You know what I mean? Like not everyone wants to be a superstar. Some people just enjoy doing it for fun. Some people you know, find a niche. They're like, I like making this style piece or I make, I don't make functional pieces. I make this, I make Murini or, you know, some people are just looking at it as a job. It's just a good job to some people. They might not even like, you know, it's just like, whatever, like, you know what I mean? And none of it's wrong or right. It's all just like, you know, that, and that's, what's cool about it. And, uh, and like, I don't know. I think it's dope as fuck. Like, I don't know. I, I, the more it grows, I think in general, the better it gets sort of, the more interesting it gets. And you know what I mean? There's like, you know, so I don't know. I don't feel any like uh, precious, like trying to hold on to it or like try to keep it underground. And obviously I made a movie that was on Netflix. So if I was trying to keep it underground, I would never <laughs> do anything like that. You know what I mean? But at the same time, when I, when I was making that movie, I had no idea that I was even going to finish a movie, let alone that it would have an influence on people. Like I really didn't know. I had right. no idea. I really was making that movie just because I wanted to. I mean, if for all intents and sake, it could have been some YouTube video that would have lived in the back of YouTube that not many people would have ever looked at. I didn't know. I didn't even, uh, I wasn't even thinking about YouTube either. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just wanted to do it. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, in general, I'm trying to maintain that in my life that, that, you know, and what I'm trying to think about what my, my, what my next degenerate art is, it's not necessarily even a movie. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but it's just about what do I find passion enough that I want to do that? I have no idea what the financial recourse is. You know what I mean? It's just something I want to do. Right. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying earlier about being able to, you know, do that a little bit now with like 
the merchandising and then, you know, just going to really go back into just doing it for you, you know, type thing. And, you know, one of the things that we haven't really discussed that I feel is like definitely part of the whole pipe making and, and weed culture is the music. And, you know, you mentioned going to the Grateful Dead show or Grateful Dead shows. And uh, obviously I've overheard from Mark and maybe even you mentioned going to quite a few fish shows. So talk to me about kind of that scene and how it played into the whole pipe making for you and for maybe like the whole culture. Cause I know it definitely affected the weed culture and, and the spread of genetics and all right. these other things. So I feel like, again, they, they go hand in hand, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that whole, I'm just going to call it in general, hippie tour culture, which really starts with the Grateful Dead and then branches out to some other bands. I feel like fish was kind of like the next major band. to like really establish this, what it is, is this, uh, kind of word of mouth network across the country where people are just forming relate. I mean, look at even me and Richardson, you know what I mean? Like this guy picked me up hitchhiking and I wasn't marble singer and he wasn't bubble man. We were just two guys going to a concert. Right. But later on, that's where we ended up and we ended up like crossing and we had even crossed paths before that. You know what I mean? So like, uh, you know, and, and like I was saying, like my whole original, my whole original deal, like the first, I didn't even know when I first started getting interested in glass pipes, they didn't, I was going to school in Ithaca, New York. They didn't sell glass pipes. There was no store that sold them. There was a porn, there was no head shop in Ithaca at the time. There was a porn shop that sold drug paraphernalia and they had some metal pipes and some plastic bombs, basically. Right. The only way, place you could get a pipe when I first got, I, I got my first piece in 94. And the only place you can get it was you had to know someone who knew someone or you had to go to the, a fish lot or a dead lot, straight up. <laughs> so that, I mean, the whole thing was like completely 100% connected. Like the connection isn't even vague or, or like, you know, a loose connection or, or people who, who it's pretty like, direct. Like, is direct. It's not just a question of like, oh, we happen to just like, like this music, you know what I mean? Or, you know, this, the, the music of the Grateful Dead even, and Fish is not even the main part of it. I actually love the music. But beyond the music, the culture affected people. The first guy that taught me to blow glass, the guy I apprenticed with, his name was Pat Kiefer, all right? My, my original, the way I started blowing glass, honestly, I don't think I've really told the story, but basically, when I was going to school, I was going to film school in Ithaca, New York in the 90s, and I was buying weed off a local guy named Ezra. He was my weed connect. And he had another friend named Zach who had moved out to the West Coast and basically learned to make a spoon, kind of learned to blow glass a little bit. And then had come back and kind of shown Ezra like what torch to buy and how to order tubing and a couple things, right? And Ezra is my weed connect. So I would go over there to buy weed. And one day I go over there and he's got this torch set up in his garage and he's trying to blow glass. And I was like, and you know, at that point, I, I, I we liked glass. I knew about glass. I had a couple pipes. Ezra had like once in a while, like imported a bunch of pipes from somewhere and like sold me some pipes. You know what I mean? Like he had imported a bunch of pipes from like Oregon or something like that. Basically, he was the first person I saw blow glass. And there was a couple other guys I was friends with that he was also friends with. That long story short, started blowing glass. So I had a group of friends that were blowing glass. I had a few friends that started blowing glass. One of them in particular, my friend Pat Kiefer, I was actually growing weed. 
I was just about to graduate from college. I was living on the outskirts of town and I was growing indoor weed with my buddy, D-Rec, who also blows glass. We started blowing glass together back in the day. We were growing weed in this house. We were living in like a five bedroom house, just the two of us. And we were blowing it up a bit. And we basically had, we'd gone, I'd gone to one of my friend's houses who blew glass and he let me jump on his torch and try it. And then he let Derek try it. And after that experience, we were like, oh God, we need to do this. And then so, so another buddy of ours, Pat Kiefer, basically need, he had just come back from the West Coast and he had just learned how to make a spoon or whatever. And he needed a place to work. And so we invited him over one day and we're like, yo, we can like maybe set up a little studio in our side room of our kitchen if, you'll, if you're willing to like show us like the ropes. And then we were like, oh, side note, we're also growing weed here and we'll like share our harvest with you if you teach us. So he was a weed head and he loved it. And he was like, fuck yeah. So he moved in actually. So he moved in the house and it was the three of us living in this house growing weed and blowing glass. And he hates fish, hates it, like beyond everything. Like I already had like, I, I had a vibe. I liked fish and stuff like that. And I'd been to a bunch of fish shows. He hated it. But that's how funny, that's how much this culture is connected to it. We would make a bunch of glass and then we, the three of us were going to move to Seattle. Me, Pat Kiefer and my buddy Derek, we're going to move from Ithaca to Seattle, go work with Ezra. We need to make some money. We made a bunch of glass. We didn't know where to sell the glass once we made the glass. There were no head shops around. We wouldn't even think about going to a head shop. The only thing we knew was we can go to fish shows. You go to a fish show, you can sell. So Fish was doing a fall tour and we went to a bunch of these shows to sell glass. So my, I'd go to the, the lot with my buddy Pat. He would be blasting drum and bass and shit like that. And he wouldn't really talk shit. He was a nice guy. But he hated it. He, refused, he wouldn't go in the show. He hated the music. He hated the fans, kind of. But he blew glass, and he loved smoking weed, and he knew that was a spot to sell pipes. So my, my homie here that I'm learning from was in the lot selling glass. So, I mean, in terms of, like, how connected they are, that's a whole other level right there. You know what I mean? This dude didn't even give a shit about this music. I wasn't allowed to play it around him. When we were in the studio together blowing glass, I was not allowed to play fish. I could only listen to it when he wasn't around. That's he hated it. <laughs> I can't remember if he hated the dead or not. At that time, I only went to one dead show. It's when I was 14. Fish is kind of my generation. I went to my first fish show in 94. I started going heavy in 95. And by 97, when I started blowing glass, I was in. I did I did all the summer tour in 96. So by 97, when I started blowing glass, it was like I was a fish head. I loved it. Like to me, it was all natural. I was like into fish, into the shows. And glass pipes was a big part of that culture. And I like, I used to hustle on the fish lots. I mean, I used to make bootleg shirts. I used to sell sodas. I used to sell veggie hummus, pitas, grilled cheeses, whatever. I used to hustle anything to make a couple dollars to get a sack to go to another show. So glass seemed like a upper echelon of hustling. I was like, wow, if I got glass right. on the fucking lot, I'm like, man, dude. And, and like, honestly, what? I did like fish tour in 96, selling t-shirts and selling sodas. And, you know, I slept in my, my, my bus after the show at a rest stop. And then in 98 and 99, I did it like, I was like ghetto fabulous. Me and Jason Lee would make a pile of work and we actually got hotel rooms. We had a rental car. You know what I mean? Like it was like, you know. Big, big time. Yeah. Sleeping in a hotel is like, you're really living large on tour if you actually are sleeping in a hotel room for real. You know what I mean? That's uh, that's upper level tour or whatever. <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah, like, it, it, honestly, like, it was, they were very connected. Like, you know, even beyond the story of my buddy who hates the music but went to the lot to sell his work, that was my life. Like, I moved to 
Seattle, 97, December. That next spring, I met up this dude, Jason Lee, came my new buddy. We ended up, we had mutual friends. We ended up working in the studio together. He was actually a really nice guy and a very talented artist and allowed me to work next to him. And I learned a lot from him. He loved fish and so did I. And I was from the East Coast and he was from the West Coast. And we had been to some of the same shows, but a lot of different shows. And we bonded right away because we love smoking weed. We're blowing glass together and we love fish. So instantly him and I were just like, boom, let's make a pile of work so that we can go on fish tour. You know what I mean? But we went on fish tour. I mean, sure, like, you could say we tried to flex our work. We were proud of it. We'd be like, look at our cool pipes. But, like, I made the pipes so I could go on tour, not so I could show off the pipe. You know what I mean? Like, I, right. I, I don't know. I didn't give a shit. It was so much fun. Like, it was amazing. It was, like, seriously, like, I, I came in, like, those times in my life were just awesome and amazing. Like, and just like the best adventure ever. And it was just cool. Like there was no internet and all that shit. And even really, you didn't have like a smartphone in your pocket. So it was like, the world was what was in front of you. You know what I mean? Like not to, again, come off like a total old head. Like I, I love technology, but like, it's a fucking pain in the ass as well. Um, it's a gift and the curse. And like those, those days were great. And like, that was the thing though. Like I remember I used to pass out. I went, so me and that dude, Pat Kiefer, who hated fish before we moved to Seattle, we didn't know how we were going to sell our glass because we were basically like, okay, when we get to Seattle, then what would we do? Like, we don't know anyone in Seattle and Seattle to us was like the land of glass blowers. Like we had gone out there to visit when we were living in upstate New York and Ithaca, like in 97, when I was blowing glass in Ithaca, there was like five other guys maybe in town blowing glass. There was no one. There was like Cornell university. There was Ithaca college. There were all these universities and colleges in upstate New York. And there were glass blowers. So they're hundreds of miles apart from each other. Like we had so much territory. I could blow glass to the cows come home and sell it all day long at that point in Ithaca. There was no one. I just used to sell it word of mouth to college kids when I wasn't going to these fish shows, basically, um, because no one else had it. Like, there wasn't even many people making it. You know what I mean? Like, that's how I, when I started blowing glass, I started blowing glass my senior year of college, and I was working at a vegan restaurant. And I ended up, as soon as I was able to make a spoon, I realized like, cause I was selling spoons for like 20 or 25 bucks each, just to random kids all day long. And then all of a sudden I can make like five spoons in my day. That's like a hundred bucks. I was getting paid like $5 an hour to work at this vegan restaurant. And even right. eight hours a day, that's like 40 bucks. Then they took taxes out too. I probably got 32 bucks. I could make that in two spoons now. And I could be high the whole time. Doing, you know what I mean? <laughs> Fucking fish or whatever. I think because yeah, my job, they used to, they used to get, I used to show up to my job stoned and they used to get pissed about it. They used to be able to basically sometimes tell and they'd be like, they were kind of progressive and they'd be like, they wouldn't fire me, but they'd be like, yo, we can tell you're high. Please don't come high. You know what I mean? And it was funny because the reason I worked at this cafe is I love their food. When I quit working there and became a pipe maker full time, I used to go eat there every day still. Like when I quit, it wasn't even bad blood. I quit and then I would show up red eyed like hungry as fuck with the munchies, like <laughs> two sandwiches, you know what I mean? Like, and then uh, it was all good, man. Yeah, it was all good or whatever. But like, uh, before I moved to Seattle, we actually made this is so this is like, I don't think I didn't even have a cell phone yet. This is 97. This is pre cell phone, pre internet, pre social media, pre all that shit. I have no idea how I'm gonna sell glass when I get to Seattle. So we had this idea we were going to these fish shows in the Northeast, so we can make enough money to move to Seattle fall 97 we made business cards we got a beeper and we put our beeper number beeper had voicemail we put our beeper number on business cards we went to the fish lot and we just gave out we made it made a company name we called ourselves molten imagination 
one of my graffiti buddies drew this like logo, this like B-boy character holding a Sherlock. I still have the, the whole logo somewhere. I can dig it up. And um, we made we made a business cards and we gave them out on the fish lot on multiple shows. And then people would randomly leave us voicemails to try to get glass. And we actually ended up connecting with a, our, my first accounts with stores, my first really like wholesaling to a store for them to re- resell the work kind of happened like that. This store in Columbus, Ohio got my business card and started hitting us up for glass and we started selling them glass. It was actually really funny because I started, I started making this very particular style piece I was making. And then I would talk to these guys on the phone and I was doing these honeycomb patterns and I learned it from Jason. And one day the guy was like, Hey, you know, something, something, we're starting to blow glass. Can you explain how this pattern works? And I explained to him without thinking about it. I explained to him how I was doing the pattern. And next thing I know, he started making like pieces very similar to the pieces I was making. It was funny because I did fish tour in 98 and then with Jason. And then in 99, we did fish tour again that summer. And when we went to the Columbus, Ohio show, we're walking around the fish lot and Jason goes, Whoa, look at that pipe over there. That looks like one of the pipes you made. Then we got further and we saw someone sitting with like six of them for sale. Jason was like, that looks like your work. And then we started tracing it all over the lot. And we finally found these guys who own this store higher ground it was called and they were like producing like they had bought a lot of my pipes that were in this style and eventually they just started to basically make them themselves which in the end is the worst thing in the world it was trippy actually i wasn't even necessarily mad or anything like that the whole idea of all that happening of people like kind of like biting or making your style i i I don't know it was new like so I i didn't i felt different ways about it but it was actually more put this way i was doing acid at every one of these shows so right. I'm not walking around with a briefcase as a businessman at this fish lot, look like investigating who's making what pipe. I, my, I have a head full of acid and I'm there to have fun. You know what I'm right. saying? So I, I, I thought it was trippy. Honestly, I thought it was weird and crazy that there were other pipes that looked like mine. Like I didn't even necessarily care one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was tripped out, but it was weird. Like, you know, tales from the tales from fish tour, you know what I mean? Like that was a huge part of that for me was, you know, it was everything. It was where I went, what I did for fun. And I guess it's like what I did for business in a way, well, in a way, like I'd structure it kind of like that. You know what I mean? But when I came back from fish tour, I mean, I would do liquid acid every single show for like a dozen plus shows in a row. I'd be tripping for weeks, literally to a point where like, I would have to come down from that after that tour. Like I would realize months after tour ended that I was like, Whoa, I think I'm actually sober now. I'm not even fucking with you. Like, I love psychedelics. I loved them a lot back then. It was crazy. It was amazing times. You know what I mean? But like, I don't even know. Like, I, uh, I blew money to. I, I blew, blew money. I blew glass to survive, and and thrive and have a good time and just like you know and and, and experience. And, uh, and I never saved any money. I never cared about having money or owning anything for a long time. Now I'm getting older. I'm like, oh yeah, I should buy a house one day or something. <laughs> Yeah, like you said earlier, you know, at different points in your life, uh, you look at things differently and and the you of today doesn't look at things like at the person at that time, you know, and. Uh, oh, oh. And that's what, you know, it's funny because I think I'm still responding to your original question almost, which was about the innocence of it all. And when I talk about it and think about it and I reflect on it, I kind of live in it again, you know, just telling the stories or sort of lamenting on it like. It was fucking good times. Like I had a really fun, crazy, good life. I even feel like I'm really stoked about my age and where I got to live in 
the history of the world in terms of like social media and the internet. I'm glad I got to experience it, but I'm glad I got to like live in a world before it really, like I got to experience both. You know what I mean? Like I got to know what like, both things are like. I'm not too old to reject it. And I'm not too young to not know what it's like without it. You know what I mean? And like, you know, as social media and the internet and, and, and smartphones have changed everything forever, it's changed everything with glass pipes. You know what I mean? We, you can never, those kinds of experiences, I'm not saying that we still can't have awesome experiences that will be involved with glass. It's just, it's going to be new to be different. You know, like that's why I'm even like, like I, I love the idea of social smoking. Like my favorite thing about glass pipe events, but you know, nowadays it's more of a normal thing for artists to have a show to be considered like an artist and like have an actual presentation of their work, you know, or people do group shows, but the best part about them is the gathering of people who get to smoke together, who get to enjoy what they do, who get to enjoy smoking weed or taking dabs. And, you know, in a sense, it, you know, it's partly an excuse to like take your fancy car at the garage and drive it around and show people you got a fancy car. You know what I mean? Like I got this rig, like, you know, it's like if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Like if someone owns a rig and they're not posting videos and bringing it to the sesh, does it even exist? You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, it has to be flexed. It has to be flaunted or whatever. And that's, you know, I don't know. I'm like, that's one side of it. Like, it's weird. I, you know what? It's weird. I say it like that. I'm catching myself talking like that going, wow, that's weird that I'm saying that. Cause for me, I don't look at glass like that. Like I don't even, I, in my collection, I have very few rigs. I might have one or two rigs, to be honest with you, in my collection. I have dozens of pipes, a lot of pipes. A lot of them I traded for. I purchased a few. But most of my pieces, a lot of them are nostalgia. I like to collect work by people I know that I've had a connection with. Or I like to also collect a lot of old school work. Like back in the day, I worked with guys like Pedro or Jason Lee or Marcel or whoever. That were these dudes that I looked up to that I thought were the greatest. And I still think are some of the greatest pipe makers out there to ever do it. And back then... I couldn't dream of affording one of their pipes. I had no kind of income like that. And now that I feel like I can maybe save up some money or be able to afford to buy something, own one of those pipes, like I have a few Jason Lees in my collection. It's like my prized possession, you know what I mean? And it's beyond flexing it that it's a Jason Lee or trying to like, or, or how much it costs or didn't cost. It's just like my connection to Jason is actually why I love it, to be honest with you. Actually, my favorite pipe I have by Jason is a pipe that he made on my birthday one year and then gifted to me the next day. And so it was literally made on my birthday and it was made with the intention for it to be mine. And that's so special. You know what I mean? To me, like, I love that. Like that's, that's the flex right there, you know, but I get it too. I get how the scene is today. I understand if someone buys a really cool, fancy pipe there, there, there's a degree of sharing it with their friends and their peers that that's part of the satisfaction, you know? And you know what? There's probably a whole group of people out there too that like to keep that way more private that I'm less aware of because they're keeping it private, you know? What I see is what I see on social media, you know what I mean? A lot. Obviously, I go to the events as well. Cool, man. I think this would be a good point for us maybe to take a quick smoke break. Shout out to the homies Pele Polare, your thermal jacketing specialist. You can visit them at pelepolareco.com or on Instagram at pele underscore polare. Whether you need to keep your washing vessel colder for longer or you're just looking to make your workflow more efficient, Pele Polare has got you covered. Their thermal jackets are made of closed cell technology that's rubber based and military grade and is then finished with a nylon that's used to make deep sea diving suits. So as I've said before, it's serious gear, not your standard koozie. They've also recently added a new line of high grade 
triple thick stainless steel vessels that range from 10 gallons to 65 gallons in size that includes a drain valve and a false bottom and gives you cool options like adding extras like the sight glass, the temp gauge, and even their new 220 stainless steel inserts so that you don't have to concern yourself with a messy cleanup after you're done washing. So if you wash hash and you want to make your process more efficient while saving yourself resources, visit the homies at pelepolareco.com. That's P-E-L-L-E-P-O-L-A-R-E-C-O.com and use our savings code, the letters T-H-I, standing for the Hashishin, to save 5% on your entire order with Pele Polare. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. You bring up a lot of good points, man, and, and one of them that I want to talk about is this kind of shift from from pipes to rigs, you know, and uh, what does it take to be a commercially viable glass pipe maker nowadays? And, you know, how much of that plays into like, I've heard you talk about, you know, artists as commodities and how much is, does that play into being able to survive in a market where rigs likely kind of dominate? That's a good question for me in particular, because I'm actually not, I wouldn't use the word struggling with that, but for the first time in my career, I'm not on the forefront of what the biggest thing is in glass, which is recyclers. I've never made a recycler ever. I've never even tried to make one yet. I actually, that's one of my goals (laughs) sooner than later is to like, try to make one and then hopefully obviously successfully make them and maybe call it my own version or something like that. Partly for the challenge of it, because I think it's a cool genre of piece and everything like that. I think I've stayed away from it partly because I don't want to like completely try to kind of copy what other people do. And I just hadn't got the inspiration of what my design might be, but uh, yeah, you know, and then sometimes, so I think about it and I'm like, damn, am I like, am I, am I not as relevant if I don't make recyclers? You know what I mean? I don't think that's necessarily true at all. And there's actually certain, there's certain artists I really look up to who are old school artists that don't make recyclers either that are very respected. Like I think right off the top of my bat, AK or Carlson are the two people I just off the top of my head think of. Jason Lee, I think MNP has made a recycler. I don't know. A lot of my old school buddies don't necessarily make recyclers. Some have delved into it. Some don't. I haven't tried yet. I've nothing against it. I just haven't tried yet. I don't know. I don't know. It's, a, it's techie. It's different. Um, when glass on glass first popped, I remember back in the day when I first learned how to make a bubbler and I learned how to steal the down, steal the downstem in. I thought, okay, when I know how to do that, I know everything I need to know about scientific glass. I've always been way more interested in the pattern on the glass. That's always been my favorite part of the glass to concentrate on. If you look at my career, if you actually really laid out, I don't have a lot of old pictures of my pipes, unfortunately, because we didn't have digital cameras back then or weren't documented. So a lot of my documentation starts in my sandblasting phase which I started in 2006, but I started blowing glass in 97. So there's a good nine or 10 years of my work that's barely documented. But I did a lot of experimenting with all sorts of patterns from inside out and reticellos and disc flips and honeycombs and all different types of stuff, which led into doing sandblasted image work and all whatever. So I've always really focused on, that's been like my favorite thing to focus on. I, more and more as I've gone on in my career, I've got into the scientific aspect of glass blowing. If you want to refine your craft as a glass blower, you have to really understand the medium. So that enables you to be able to make a cleaner, nicer piece. And that's kind of like the goal of a lot of artists, really, because it's like glass is a, it's one of those mediums that like it kind of starts with 
if the science is in there, sometimes the, even the aesthetics don't matter. Like it has to be tight. It has to be made well. If it's not well constructed, if the seals aren't properly done, things like that, it's just, it's hard to pay attention to the rest of it. So, you know, it's become important more and more to like focus on, it's just gotten techier. It's gotten more difficult. And, and now I'm back up to explain to you, I don't come from the institutional academic background of glassblowing. So, you know, guys who went to school for scientific glassblowing or had scientific glass jobs or whatever, or maybe even just like more new school cats who like start with the conception of like trying to, uh, you know, if you start blowing glass a couple of years ago, one of the first things you're probably working towards is making recycler right away. That's what you're trying to figure out. You might've gone into it because you love recyclers. And one day your dream is to make a recycler. So you're just like thinking along those lines and you're trying to learn how to do those seals and, and how that construction works. You know what I mean? Um, I still haven't figured it out to be honest with you. I, uh, I need to work on it. I need to, I need to try is what I need to do. But um, yeah, it's interesting to be an old head and to be old school and try to keep up with everything and, and the idea of flower pieces versus rigs. And I've definitely, I've dove into the rig world. I've learned how to make the handmade joints. I still feel like I'm always refining that and trying to make them nicer and stuff like that. Um, I really have learned a lot from new school guys, paid attention every time I work with like a more new school blower who knows how to do. I really pay attention to other glass blowers. Like my strength really is I, I work with as many people as I can in person. And I literally really try to take some time to spend a watch how other people do things, whatever the things they do are. Not even at all to copy them. I never, the last thing I ever want to do is do what someone else is doing. The minute someone says, hey, that's cool. It kind of looks just like that guy. That's not a compliment to me. I don't ever want to do that. But I pay attention to how people approach the medium is what I do. It's not a question of the actual aesthetic they're achieving, but, but, but what they're doing with their hands, for instance, or maybe they have tricks or techniques or an order of operations or whatever. But yeah, it's a crazy teched out world. I'm blown away by some of the like more scientific type like rigs. You know, I, I can make a banger hanger pretty decently. I've gone to lathe work in the last few years. I never did lathe work before. That really helps with trying to do more scientific work, especially for me personally. And do you think that there's like some plus and minuses to having come from like the old school versus you know, now coming from, like you said, going into directly trying to do something that's really technically challenging, uh, like make a recycler. Is there kind of like an in-between uh, where it's a combination of, of both these things? Is that kind of the sweet spot? Uh, wait, I don't totally understand the question. I guess the question is, uh, like, are there plus and minuses to to both in your case, having started before there was really like a lot of uh, knowledge and, and you guys kind of had to pave the way and learn from each other versus now we're like... I'll tell, you, I'll tell you exactly, really easily, I can tell you that. Okay, the plus to my situation of being into it back in the day is we were able to take it seriously without having to take it too seriously. You know what I mean? I felt less pressure there's less of a scene there's like there's nowhere to try to get to like now hey you know if you get really good at glass if you get really creative with it you can make a lot of money you can make really interesting stuff you can get really get people's attention if you if if you you know you could you could be the next wjc or darby or uh, i don't know i'm trying to think of who mike gong or whoever the most popular guy is i don't know you know what i mean who they are those, those are very popular guys right there and, and, you know, one of the things also in common is like their work sells for a decent amount of money, you know, which I think that's, that's the thing. It's like, 
back in the day, the work had a ceiling, a real obvious ceiling. Money, I don't know. That changes things, you know what I mean, in weird ways or whatever. So what I'm saying is it was cool to like kind of be, the innocence was cool. Like there's almost like, it's kind of like skateboarding even today. Like back in the like day day of skateboarding, before anyone ever got paid to be a skateboarder, no one did it for money, right? You know what I mean? Like, so then like now if you're skateboarding, you're like, well, I, I could become Tony Hawk and have a video game. Like, let's just say you start getting good at it. Right. Let's just say you actually win a contest or some sponsor wants to sponsor you and things start to happen. Let's just say, you know what I mean? Cause you are okay at it and you do like doing it and you do it all the time. You have a unique thing or whatever it is. You know what I mean? The next thing you know, it's this whole thing you get swept up on. You know what I mean? There's like a pro and con to all that. But you know, the thing, the, the, the pro to starting now is like, we have, we have gone through so much trial and error to get to now that you can skip so much bullshit. Like, um, I'm kind of jealous sometimes with the kids that get to start now. What's like, what, how much information there is and how much like, I don't know. Yeah. But like you said, there's a trade-off where you had a blast doing all this stuff to get to this point where. Yeah, totally. Like, and you know what? I think some of the newer, younger kids who were starting to blow up, I think they're having a blast too. They're having a different their own way. Yeah. yeah. They're having their own version of it. You know what I mean? Like, I think the thing for me is, I'll see guys in their twenties who are starting to blow up and get a following and people are willing to like throw some money at their work and they just rightfully so just kind of quickly get serious about it where they're like, you know, working all the time and they're booking constant shows and they're like, you know, on their Instagram, they're promoting it. And they're like, it's all great. Cause they're like progressing with their work and they're making a living. But like you end up in this, it's like, it's a rat race no matter what. You know what I mean? Like, it's weird. Like when I was young and I got in the glass, it was because I didn't want to, I was avoiding the rest of the world. So not avoiding it, but like, I've always wanted to live an alternative lifestyle. You know what I mean? Like I never wanted to get a job and I always was into alternatives to society. You know what I mean? Like in general, I always, I don't know. So like in a way, do you feel like alternative to some degrees going or gone pop? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, it's positive. It's yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like the year punk broke. You know what I mean? Nirvana is selling albums or whatever. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. There's, there's a lot of pop involved. You know what I mean? I I, I kind of have like sometimes like yeah. It's funny because sometimes you think it's like you know, it's like a formula or whatever. Like hey, like you know, learn to blow glass. Like come up with a really cool recycler, dial it in, collab with a bunch of dudes that are like really cool too, have a show. Next thing you know, you're like really cool <laughs> and making money. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm like, a, someone might think I'm a dick for saying that. Someone might be clapping because I said that. I have no idea. But you know, and that's just a generalization. Like, you know, there's, all, there's a million perspectives on a million things. Like when I look at the world, I see it from like a thousand viewpoints simultaneously. If I'm being mindful, I'm not always being mindful. But when I can, if I'm trying, like when I think about glass, which is something I'm serious about, I, I see lots of different perspectives and they're all valid. You know what I mean? They're as valid as mine is. Mine is mine and theirs is theirs and none are right or wrong. You know what I mean? It just all is what it is. But yeah, it's funny. It's weird. It's crazy. It's been, as they say in the Grateful Dead world, it's been a long, strange trip and it's been an awesome fucking trip. Yeah, man. Well, dude, I appreciate you hanging out with me so long. Uh, I'll start winding this down. 
you know, this is kind of a small point, but it's something that goes around the cannabis community. And I'm interested on your take on it is to water or not to water, you know, is water filtration a good thing for smoking cannabis, especially when you're spending a hundred bucks on a gram of hash? Uh, I'm going to go with both. And it's because a variety is a spice of life. And you know what? The whole, for me, as a young weed smoker, back when I was even a teenager or whatever, you know, it was fun. You'd smoke out of a pipe and then you roll a joint and then you roll a blunt and then you smoke out of a bong and then you smoke a hookah and then you made a homemade contraption and then, and then you roll the joint. You didn't just smoke joints or just smoke, <laughs> smoke something. You've mixed it up. You know what I mean? Like that's what's fun about smoking. And no matter what it is, you might want to smoke out of a dry piece, taste it. You might want to get a huge hit because this recycler can like give you this huge hit you couldn't get out of a regular bubbler. Maybe you want to sip on it. So you're going to smoke this banger hanger. You know what I mean? Like I would, I would mix it up. You know what I mean? Like, and, uh, you know, never, you know, sometimes people like a certain way that they like to like kind of a daily driver. They're like, you know, all day long, I like to hit bombs or all day long. I hit rigs or I hit, or all day long. I hit dries or all day long. You know what I mean? But, uh, I think mixing it up is the spice of life. Really? You know what I mean? Like try it all out. Yeah. And do you, uh, really enjoy the kind of ritualistic part of smoking, Cause it's not something that I really get to talk a lot about with people, but and I think pipes innately are part of that process. Yeah. A hundred percent. I love it. Actually back in the day, we never ever smoked a piece until someone purchased it. And when someone purchased the piece, they always had to be the first person to christen it and smoke out of it. And that was always a ritual. It's funny because now in the dab days, it kind of makes sense to me, but at first I was not into it where a lot of guys who make rigs will hit their own rigs before they sell them. But I realized it made sense because especially making recyclers and these more complex pieces, you kind of got to test the pieces out to see how you're going to refine them in their construction as you continue to make these pieces. You can't like never use them and understand how they're working because, you know, you can change the little dimensions in a recycler, the, the airspace and how the you know, how the drain is and where the, the, the perk is and what kind of perk you use and every, all these little adjustments are going to change how a piece functions. How are you going to know? And, and, and in these days, also a lot of these pieces were shipping out or sending in the mail or some, someone, you're not necessarily back in the day, we sold a lot of pieces in person. So I smoked out of a lot of my own pipes, but I would never smoke out of it until someone bought it. And that would be a whole ritual. It'd be like, we'd be, I'd be in a studio. I'd have like four or five shop mates someone was buying someone's piece could be mine could be someone else's we'd all stop and hang out and form a circle and be like everyone would, you know i'll pack your piece next and whatever and we used to wipe the bowl out with your t-shirt usually because that was the whole idea of smoking glass glass is a non-porous substance so you would get these green hits you know only green hits and you know towards the side and it was a whole ritual and, and everything right yeah. yeah you know huge huge part of it and like passing the pipe around holding it and people you check the piece out usually pass it to be exciting you know what i mean like if it was a color changing pipe obviously it'd be changing as time went on as it was smoked out of yeah for sure man uh i've heard you talk about working as a glass blower for a long time before a and i think you may have mentioned this uh, you know taking some kind of formal class with somebody yeah, uh, you know, it had been like 10 years or so at that point. But, you know, you also mentioned almost like past that point or maybe once you made degenerate art and, and you got to keep blowing glass, 
that you at some point accepted yourself or viewed yourself as an artist. And, you know, I'm curious if that's influenced like your work or your style of work or the way that you go about making work and how much concept influences form versus form, uh, you know, being the primary uh, thing outside of function, obviously. Well, basically around the time that I was kind of getting a little bit depressed and a little bit sour with pipe making, I started doing, I got, I got very interested in stencil graffiti. I was living in Vancouver. Uh, there was this guy, an artist named the dark that was doing these really sick stencil pieces around the city that I thought were dope as fuck. I was researching stencil graffiti online. I discovered Banksy and I started kind of like doing really like toy style, little stencils, cutting stencils. I would like a lot of time be working on a bubbler where I'd have to like take it out of the kiln and I do, I heat it. I do some move to it, add a marble or do something. I put it back in the kiln 15 minutes. So during, in between those moves, I would just cut stencils and I would actually ride my BMX bike around my neighborhood and I would paint them on like dumpsters and stupid shit. And I just got a kick <laughs> out of it. I thought it was fun. There was no real, I had no big thing about it. You know what it is? I think honestly, I always kind of wanted to be like a painter or like be able to paint and do portraits of people and stuff. But I never, I was always scared to try and I didn't think I would be very good at it. So I never tried much. And then when I discovered stencils, I wasn't even even using Photoshop. It was funny. I would take like photographs and I would just kind of print them out. And then I would kind of like sort of draw on top of them and then cut the stencil. I would kind of do my own Photoshop with a marker, sort of like really crudely. I would just use the, the, the photo. I would use as like a basis. Okay, the eyes, where the eyes need to be positioned in the nose and what lines sort of need to exist to define those things. And I sort of was like, almost like kind of teaching myself to draw a little bit by like drawing over these photographs. And then I cut it into a stencil and I was able to spray paint it. I could like make a face of someone or something like that. I just thought it was neat. You know what I mean? That sounds so corny to call it neat, but whatever. Uh, and I, you know, I would do stupid shit. Um, I don't even know. I would do Audrey Hepburn and, you know, Sherlock Holmes and dumb shit. And then there was this artist named Robert Mickelson, who was not a pipe maker, who is now a pipe maker, but he was like kind of just a very, one of the few very well-known borosilicate artists. He just made vessels and art and stuff like that out of glass. And he did this uh, technique called Grawl, which basically involves creating two layers of glass and creating a, a vinyl stencil and sandblasting through one layer to the other. Basically stenciling, basically it's a glass version of stenciling images onto pieces. And I was really bored with glass blowing and having so much fun doing these stencils. And I finally put it all together. I was like, I got to take a class with this guy. And then I can basically take what I'm doing on the side. That's actually giving me enjoyment and I can bring it into my glass work, which is kind of what I do for a living. You know what I mean? And what actually happened was, is once I went and took this class with him and learned the technique of how to do it before that, like I said, I concentrated very much on the decoration of the pipe, the pattern work. So it's all, People used to say it's all dots and lines and that's what it is. You can, what can you do pattern work? I mean, short of actually drawing an actual like uh, representational image, like actually drawing a picture of a person, let's say at a glass, which was, I never even fathomed I could do that at a glass. You just did different patterns with dots, different patterns with lines. You could twist the lines, you could squig the lines, you could reverse it. You know, you do all these things over and over again, but it was just dot and line patterns. Now that I learned how to 
basically stencil images onto pipes. Now the pipe was a blank canvas for me. And it was, now I looked at it and I said, no, well, well what do I want to say? Like, I can put anything on here now. I've like learned this technique. My door is open. Like I can put anything I want on this pipe. Why would I put, what would I choose and why would I choose it? You know what I'm saying? And it's been really fun, actually. That to me, that's when I decided I was an artist or fuck, I don't even want to, I feel like it's pretentious when people call themselves artists, but let me, let me just explain that for a second. And I had a girlfriend that put in perspective. I had a girlfriend one time that said, why do you pipe maker guys insist on calling yourself artists? She's like, why? You guys just make pipes. And I said, you know what? It's not about whether or not it's art or some kind of like debate about what is art or art versus craft. I was like, the bottom line is it's a question of respect. When someone's an artist, people respect that. If you're like, I'm an artist, you respect that. You know what I'm saying? And like as pipe makers, people have kind of, if you tell someone who's very uneducated in my field, if I say I make pipes for a living, the first thing they're going to think of is just some kind of drug paraphernalia. It's probably going to be a negative reference. It's not going to, they're not going to be thinking in their mind what I'm thinking in my mind. But if I say I'm an artist, well, then that, now they're like setting themselves up for a different mind state about what I might be creating. You know what I mean? So it's really just kind of like kind of trying to respect the craft. You know what I mean? It's not even trying to debate about what is art and whether it should be considered art, whether I'm an artist, what defines someone being an artist. But that being said, if you do look into the world of fine art, what fine art is defined as is concept. That's what separates fine art from all the other types of art. You know what I mean? Um, is concept that first and foremost, you know, whether the artist intends a concept or whether academic people later on assign a concept to it, like who knows necessarily what John Michel Basquiat, his concept was behind his paintings, but now academics have, you know, talked about it and critiqued it and have like, you know, written about it or whatever. And I've come up with like, Oh, like, you know, what, what this, you know, his work isn't just valuable based on, the actual physical works based on his influence, his life, and then what these academics have like assigned to the work. You know what I'm saying? Like, but uh, yeah, I'm someone who's always been interested really in the art history. And I've always been someone who yearns to have pipes being taken seriously. And so again, to call a piece of pipe of art, it's not as much about like, it's so important for me to consider this art or have it to be defined as art. It's more like, it's so important for me to actually get respected. That's actually what's important. If you don't want to call it art, fine. All I need is respect. I don't really care about the debate of art and craft. To me, that's actually pretty boring to debate about what's art and what's not art or whatever. Because in a sense, yes, we make these pipes first and foremost to function as pipes. In that sense, people would never call it fine art. It's functional art, which is functional art, whatever art, 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 fart, who cares? You know what I mean? I don't give a shit personally at all. That being said, to be able to make work and put some of your personality into it, to have a voice, to be able to even have a, a even a, a, a like a, a subversive or subconscious little socio-political critique. Um, a lot of the images that I chose to put on my pipes for years, they all had a very particular reason I chose them. I chose them with reasons that I sort of academically debated in my head about. And then that debate led to the choice of the image, sort of. You know what I mean? Like, for instance... I spent a long time researching Andy Warhol. I was trying to understand what made Andy Warhol a great artist. What exactly was his influence? In doing all that research, I got really into him. And I really became even more of a fan of his work than ever. And so at some point, I was putting soup cans on my pipes, the image of a soup can. And um, 
you know, in some ways it's kind of cliche and kind of obvious to like a lot of artists uh, use Andy Warhol as like a jump off point. There's a lot of art that's made as a reference to Andy Warhol and people take the soup can and elaborate on it one way or another. But the reason that is, is because Andy Warhol really had a major, he added a major part of the conversation of art history. Like at the point Andy Warhol comes in, it's kind of where commercial art transcends. In other words, the way I was seeing it was I was trying to understand and almost have my own debate about whether pipes were art. Andy Warhol paints or silk screens a, a soup can or a series of them and puts them on a wall. And when you look at those, you think to yourself, what's the difference between that and just going to a supermarket and seeing a bunch of soup cans in a row? I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting commentary about whether it's art or whether it's a product. Because really, when you paint a painting and you put it in the gallery, and you have a price tag, it's kind of just like a soup can on a shelf in a, in, a, in a supermarket. It's like, you can create art for the sake of creating art, or you can create a product that's for sale. You know what I mean? Art doesn't have to be a product for sale, but it often is and can be, and we commodify it. And Andy Warhol was making this honestly very simple but very complicated commentary about the commodification of art. And so I internalized all that, and saw that with pipe making. And I was like, wow. I started reading all this interesting stuff about Andy Warhol. I read his autobiography and I read critiques about him and books about him and stuff and conversations about what his influence was and, and what he was actually saying with his work. And that made me come back to pipe making. And I was like, well, what is a pipe? Is a pipe art or is it just a product on a shelf? You know what I mean? Like, what is it thing? And so I, I, I kind of like, I remember the first time I ever Sam at a soup can on a pipe. I thought it was the coolest pipe ever. Like when I first made that first one, that, that since then I've honestly admittedly made actually hundreds of pieces that have a soup can in there somewhere. I've used the image quite a bit at this point. But the first time I did it, I looked at it and I was like, this is, when I made it, I was even like, I want to own this. Like that's actually for me as an artist or a craftsperson, I feel successful when I make something that I really would want. You know what I mean? That's kind of partly my goal. Because if I make something and I'm done with it, I'm like, damn kind of want this like or I like this or I'd own this I feel like really successful with it which is actually not necessarily a majority of my work I'm usually pretty much a harsh critic but the first time I made this pipe with this salt with this uh soup can on it like basically so like I'm saying when I when I came up when I came up when I sort of delved into this body of work if I was going to put images on pipes and I have this pipe now staring at me as a blank canvas and I say what do I want to put on it what I'm going to put on it is what I would, I'm thinking like, well, if I had a pipe, what would be cool to have on the pipe? You know what I mean? And when I saw the soup can, I was just like, I loved it. I fell in love with it. I thought it was, I thought it was cool as fuck. You know what I mean? And it, it just started to go from there. I, all of a sudden I felt like I had a voice. I've made pipes that have, I took an image of myself. At one point I had a discussion with a, uh, a gallery owner, a friend of mine who's owned a few galleries. He, he used to own a major gallery here in Philly. Then he, then he owned a major gallery in New York city for a while selling art. And I was in his office one day in the back of his gallery and he was showing me this painter that he was working with. And he was showing me a new painting that the painter had done a self-portrait and the self-portrait had been commissioned by a collector. And I said to him, that's odd. I was like, why would someone commission an artist to like paint themselves? I was like, really? I was like, if that's, that's what you're asking an artist to do if everything they, the guy is actually a fa the guy, the artist uh, did really photorealistic oil paintings of still lives. They're really, really dope. And so this, and then my buddy said to me, actually in the art world, he said, 
a self-portrait by an artist is actually a very valuable piece in their body of work. It's actually like almost all, a lot of major great artists at some point do something considered a self-portrait or do self-portraits and usually sometimes get commissioned for them and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then I thought to myself, I should do something like that, like on a pipe, like I should throw something out there. And so my buddy, uh, Jag, just another glassblower, um, we were influencing each other. I moved to Philly when I was starting to, when I was in the middle of doing my film and I was really preaching about the, the need to document. And so he got inspired and decided to put together a book called Smoked Volume One. He's done Smoked Volume One and Smoked Volume Two. I wrote the foreword for Smoked Volume One. Um, and anyway, so I had to make a piece for this book and I thought, I'll make a self-portrait piece. Because I felt like a good opportunity. It wasn't like, I wasn't necessarily trying to make a commercial piece of art. I, I thought it was kind of crazy that anyone would even want to own a pipe with a picture of me on it. You know what I mean? Right, right. But I'm also a big fan of hip hop. And I really like Nas and Biggie. And Nas and Biggie, their first albums they came out with have childhood photos of themselves. Biggie, it's like a picture of him as a little kid, like a baby, basically. And Nas on Illmatic, it's a picture of him. He looks like he's nine or something like that or whatever. And I thought that was dope that that's how they kind of put themselves out there sort of. So I found a like fourth grade portrait or something like that, that was sitting at my mom's house. Like, you know, it's taken in school where your hands are folded over. I was wearing like, a <laughs> yeah. and I, and I sandblasted that on a bubbler um, and made that piece. You know what I mean? And that, that to me, like, you know, and I've made a very small handful of other pieces that have that image of me on it. That was tripped out to me though, that people, you know, Someone's bought that. Someone's smoking out of a piece that has a picture of me as like a fourth grader on it. That's when I started to really feel like, okay, this can get, this is fun. This is random. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I've designed all sorts of different images that I put on pipes and some have been very popular and some have not been as popular because some are more obscure type things that people like probably are wondering why the hell I even put it on a pipe or just don't get it. Cause like, I'm not explaining it and it needs an explanation if you want to know why I put it on there, but uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> There's funny, interesting things. Like for instance, here, I'll tell you another random, just anecdote off the side thought that I'm having about this subject, which is when I lived in Vancouver, when I first moved there, I had two female roommates and I was blowing glass in the garage. One of my roommates actually was a woman who was very involved in the medical cannabis scene in Vancouver. She was a big pioneer of the, even the first uh, medical club opening there. And I remember one day I wanted to make her a pipe. She was really into the cannabis scene. I think she, I just was like, yeah, I'll make you a piece. You know, well, what do you want me to make you? And she said to me, pipes are so phallic. They're so male. She's like, can you make me a pipe that doesn't feel like a penis? Make me a pipe that doesn't seem so male. Make me something feminine. And it was crazy because every design I thought of, everything was like, ah, it's all kind of like a dick somehow or not. Like, it was crazy. Like, it actually was really hard for me to kind of visualize a pipe that like was really like had a more like feminine energy to it. Fast forward that stuck in my head that pipes are so masculine. When I started sandblasting images on pipes and I was thinking of like, well, what images do I want to put on there? I love women on many different levels. And I thought I want to kind of put interesting images of women on pipes to sort of add a feminine vibe to the pipe. You know what I mean? Like, and I would 
sometimes take obscure photos of models from magazines and stuff like that, that had like a really, I usually ba- chose them based on their expression and also based on like, I really like very contrasty photos that I thought would make a really powerful looking image. And I would make pieces that would just, you know, sometimes I'd just blast random images of like a girl, like, and she'd be, have some kind of expression or something like that. And to me, that was the whole basis of the, of the choice. Like was the, I was like, I want to feminize pipes. I want to like, even if it was a hammer pipe that has like a very phallic look to it, it's almost like a nut sack, like a ball sack and a, and a dick. Or, <laughs> right. I was like, if I put a woman, a female image on it, it's adding some, maybe some kind of female energy to help feminizing that. I feel like, I mean, we've smoked the female plant. We don't smoke the male plant. You know what I mean? So I feel like there's a lot of feminine energy with cannabis. And I felt like I wanted to include that energy somehow or another in my work. So like, that's even like a very light concept that I was playing with. You know what I mean? And it comes down to the thing. I also thought the, just the aesthetic looked good. You know what I mean? But I had thoughts about reason. I wasn't just like, I'm putting pictures of hot chicks on my pipe. You know what I mean? Or something like that, or cool chicks or famous chicks. A lot of the women I chose, I don't mean if anyone by saying chick, by the way, I was trying to play a part there, but uh, a lot of the images I chose were actually, some are, a few of them are famous women, but a lot of them are kind of unknown. Or not unknown, but like, you know, someone who's not necessarily, you know, recognizable or something like that. I was choosing it for an anonymous, you know. Yeah, but, and uh, I'm curious if that at all played into creating the assault girl. Wow, yeah. I actually was just, I just wrote a little something. I wrote a little, I'm actually about to come out with a coloring book. It's one of the new items I'm about to drop sometime in the next month. And I wrote an introduction to the coloring book that kind of like explains sort of the history of the assault girl. Like kind of like when I came up with it, sort of what I was thinking, what I'm thinking about now. I don't know. It's funny because I never really usually too much get into defining that. Maybe on, if you listen to those talk out the glass podcasts, I think that's the only other podcast I've done. So I assume that's the ones you listen to. That's all Uh, I could find. (laughs) Yeah, that's all I've done. I don't know. I might talk about the assault girl a little bit. I think, I think I do talk about it a little bit. I think on that second one, one of our, I don't know how many I was on two or three. I can't remember. There was one of them though. That was, uh, I think it was some kind of woman who was, uh, a Patreon or something. It was like, she had wanted to do a Q and a with me or something like that. So it was kind of a special episode where I think she was asking me particularly about that stuff. So I tried to deliver some kind of like, I don't know. It was last year. I remember it was during the pandemic and everything was happening with like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And so I was like, it's weird because you like, you know, you want to put yourself out there politically. You got to be careful, I guess, or you don't have to be careful or it's like everyone's on these different sides and stuff like that. So it gets kind of weird. And like there is a political, sociopolitical commentary going on in the assault girl, you know, that anyone can interpret in different ways. I mean, honestly, it's a, I've seen it's actually something that, it, you know, <laughs> to throw it out there, I've seen it's very actually popular with liberals and conservatives for different reasons in different ways. But the assault girl was like, Literally just another image I was playing with amongst other images. And I really liked the idea of sampling hip hop appropriation, you know, taking something and recontextualizing it, remixing it, you know, I kind of, it's, it goes back to the idea of like, you know, advertising and logos or something that are kind of forced upon us everywhere we go. If you're going to read a magazine, if you're going to walk around, you're at the train station, whatever, you're forced to see these things everywhere, Right. So in some senses, I feel like, you know what? 
fuck that. I'm going to take that and make that mine or do something with it. But I wasn't even really thinking that much about it, to be honest with you. I actually just thought the assault girl was, that the Morton assault girl was kind of a cool looking image, but that it would be corny for me to just like straight blast the Morton assault girl on a piece. And um, I am not necessarily, I actually don't even own a gun. <laughs> I'm not against guns in any way, shape, or form. I'm not really for guns either, really. I'm kind of neutral on the, on the matter. I'm not just, really, just, they're just not a big deal. I'm not really like a, I mean, I'm not stuck that they harm people, put that way. But uh, I'm not trying to take them away from anyone. Oh, it's difficult not to get in a conversation about things to do with guns when I talk about the assault girl. But anyway, really, I did that whole Photoshop on a whim, and I've sort of come up with different interpretations of what it means to me. But then as time goes on, you'll notice that a lot of my new merch, I have the girl holding a weed plant and I have the girl holding mushrooms. The reason I did that was because that is really me right there. You know what I mean? I mean, the girl holding the gun to me, it's more about a metaphor for me. So the way I connect with that image isn't like, I love guns or I love AK, AR-15s or whatever, or, or even I'm even not even, personally, I wasn't thinking about the Second Amendment or any of that stuff. And I know people do think about that when they see the image and they have any right to, because when you put something out there, it's in the, it's in the public consciousness for them to interpret. It's not, I don't own it anymore. It's theirs. People can do whatever they want. I, I have sold, like I, I made some bronze sculptures out of, out of the piece. I did a series of 13 bronze sculptures and um, they weren't cheap. They're were expensive pieces. They were really well-made, nice collectible art pieces. That's to me the most collectible version of the assault girl I've done. And there were a couple of people that bought them that were definitely on the conservative, you know, we love guns and this, that, and the other. And like, you know, more power to them. Like, you know what I mean? Like they have the, you know, that, that's the way they got, like the guy instantly got in a conversation with me about guns and about how many guns he owns, which is like, I don't totally relate to that because I don't even own guns. I don't normally even shoot them. You know what I mean? But like I said, I wasn't like offended by it or I wasn't even like, you know, you're getting it wrong or like, no, you're not allowed to like, like it because of that. Or like, no, I think like this. So you have to interpret like that. Like, I don't care. Like, it's like, to me, I mean, honestly, I almost don't want to talk too much about what it means to me. I did write about it a little bit in this introduction thing, but in general, because it's not actually meant to have a, any direct meaning, the image actually, um, although I do have my interpretations, but in light of the United States and what goes on here. If you look at that image, I think you can understand that even subconsciously, it's just some kind of commentary about American society all wrapped into an image. Cool, man. I think this would be a good point for us maybe to take a quick smoke break. Shout out to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company. You can visit them at sixstarsociety.com. That's S-I-X starsociety.com, where you can find all the dope gear to show your love for the resin, whether you're making hash or not. For my hash makers, they have dope wash jackets to keep you dry while looking fly with the single source artwork by Eli Munster. They also have beanies and sweatshirts to keep you warm. And for the folks like myself that are not making hash, but likely smoking it, they have the gear to keep you looking good while feeling comfortable, which is personally super important to me. I love their full melt joggers and their crew necks. And of course, all their gear is made to last. It's made of high quality materials because well, otherwise it wouldn't be a six star society. So go pick up your gear to show your love for the resin at sixstarsociety.com. Again, that's S-I-X starsociety.com and use our exclusive savings code, the letters T-H-I, to save 5% on your entire order. Again, the letters are T-H-I, standing for the Hashish In. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. 
so do these variations that you're making now become their own commentary or is it just a continuation? Um, you know what? It's a whole combination of different things. It's in the end, I'm just having fun. So I don't really, as much as you'll hear me sound pretentious here and there and I'll like once in a while dive into like, well, this is my deep meaning for this, that, and the other. And like, you know, <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I, I'm like, I'm like a, I'm a film nerd and I get into analyzing films on like, you know, I watch them 50 times and like analyze shit. And like, I, I like to engage art. I like art that you have to engage. I like something that's beyond the surface. Like that's what turns my crank. Like pop art's great. That's the kind of stuff that hooks you right away, but there's something else beyond the art besides the initial hook. That's what keeps me in. You know what I mean? That's what I'm looking for. So that's actually what's cool about the assault runaway work is this kind of pop art that really grabs you in. A lot of people gravitate towards it just on site, but there is a lot more there you can find. And it all does relate to my personality and all the variations I do. They really do have concepts and reasons. And I do not do lots of things on purpose because I don't want to, because it's not, you know what I mean? I have a reason for as much as I have a reason for the choices I make. I have a huge awesome reason for the things I don't do or I won't go there with certain things in certain ways or certain, you know what I mean? Like, but the assault girl is a funny thing because it sort of just became this like body of work that happened organically that I didn't preconceive, you know, in other words, it started as another image that I put on my pieces and then people started to gravitate towards it. So I fucked around and made some shirts. And the cool part about making shirts is that, for me, I was like, all right, I created this image, like, particularly to put on a pipe. But if the image can live without the pipe, like, that's kind of interesting. Like, that's now, like, to me, that's when I felt like, all right, well, like, I'm reaching an audience on some other level besides the fact that I just want to get stung. You know what I mean? Because, like, someone who doesn't smoke weed might want to own the shirt or see the shirt and be attracted to it. You know what I mean? You're like, because... Only most of the times, only people who smoke weed are going to see a pipe. You know what I mean? Like you're not pipes aren't advertising any concepts to people who are non-stoners for the most part. You know what I mean? Because non-stoners aren't paying attention to pipes and what's on them or not on them or what they look like or whatever. Um, right. So uh, you know, it's one of those things that honestly, it all wasn't something I took seriously. And then as it gets traction, you start to backtrack a little and go, I got to take this seriously. I'm like putting this out there. Like I'm making shirts. I'm like doing stuff with it. Like I have to think about my responsibility as an artist. You know what I mean? Um, it seemed like when I made degenerate art too, I, the whole, one of the things I kept thinking about is I'm responsible to my scene. You know what I mean? I need to be responsible. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking control of how something looks. I need to like, so yeah, I don't know. It's sort of this thing that's organic, had this organic momentum and I try to use it for good and positive and, um, like last year we did some different versions that related to COVID and gave some money to charity. We've done some different things where we're like, kind of like take a theme that we can work into like a charity thing, even, you know what I mean? And like raise money, you yeah, know? Like, cool. Yeah. Like we, and, and, and it's crazy too, who you affect, you know, like we did this kind of nurse girl. She's like kind of got a nurse outfit and a mask on. She's holding Purell or whatever. And like, you know, I had people hitting me up who were like nurses and stuff who really want, who like gravitate towards the image now that like had this new meaning for them, like beyond like, you know what I mean? Or whatever. And like, right. you, know, you know, we've done some different ones that we've done for different social justice causes or like, you know, I don't know, like uh, art is a conversation with people and I don't totally shy away from putting out my opinions out there about social issues or 
or, or things of that nature. You know what I mean? I mean, sometimes it gets a little bit much on Instagram. If you actually try to really, you know, broadcast what you're talking about, your people who disagree with you are going to come at you. That's like how the world works. I think we've all learned a lot about that in the last year. I don't know anyone who's on social media that is immune to that kind of situation unless you like just basically aren't hanging out on social media. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, you know, as an, I mean, as someone who has a platform, as someone who has an audience, like it's not even necessarily that I feel responsibility. It's that I just want to, you know what I mean? Like, honestly, back in the day, my whole thing starts with like, I like smoking weed and I can go to jail for it. But that's kind of, I just learned that that's bullshit. I was like, whoa, things aren't what you think. Like the way the laws are made are because these corporations are trying to get rid of this plant, you know, hemp and all this shit. You learn the whole story about how, you know, I read The Emperor Wears No Clothes by Jack Herrera when I was in high school. You know, that's the first, if you want to even go there and talk about conspiracy theories, that's the first conspiracy I heard about, which isn't, I mean, conspiracies aren't fake necessarily. It's a question of like, you know, which ones we can verify or whatever. Obviously, there's lots of theories out there, but there's actually conspiracy truths too. Let's, let's, let's separate them in a sense. There's theories and then there's over time, we actually can go back and realize, oh, that actually happened. You know what I mean? Like marijuana being made illegal by William Randolph Hearst and DuPont and all that stuff, the marijuana tax stamp act back in 1937, all that shit is real. And it was actually a conspiracy. It was a bunch of people conspiring together to do something that wasn't actually in the interest of anyone, but these corporate people, you know what I mean? Like, so, you know, that in itself beyond the actual loving of smoking weed changed my life as a young person. You're like, whoa, People aren't really trying to help each other. The government's not actually trying to like do good by its citizens and like this, that, and the other, and like corporations. And you know, you, you just start learning all that stuff, you know. And I learned listen to hip hop and punk rock growing up and all that stuff. So I was like, you know, to, in, talk, in terms of being indoctrinated by the media, I was indoctrinated by punk rock and hip hop and the real media, the real the social media that was before social media. You know what I mean? People talk about, you know, social justice and stuff like that. I got People tell me last year, if I spoke out about racism and things like that, that I was paying attention to the media, the media, mainstream media was telling me to feel this way. I was like, yo, have you listened to Bob Marley? Have you watched a Spike Lee movie before? Like, yo, that's the media I'm paying attention to. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's the mainstream. What they're seeing on CNN isn't fueling me to like, you know, be outraged. I've been fueled by the system on many levels. You know what I mean? So, you know. If, if me and my buddies can, whatever, pay our bills and donate some charities and people enjoy getting the t-shirts and shit, I'll keep doing it. And when people aren't interested anymore, I'll move on. No problem. You know what I mean? I don't even know. Yeah, yeah that's fair. You know, it's kind of like the, 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 the assault girl and all the variations. It's like, and I actually say this in my little coloring book. It's like, I'm super serious about it. I could totally get academic with you about it and my interpretations and what I think. At the same time, it's really a light thing for me that I'm just kind of like, I was like, whoa, this is fun. And people are having fun. And it's like, kind of the more I remixed it and came up with different versions, it's kind of like, everyone's like, oh, what's the next one he's going to come out with? I'm like, what is the next one I'm going to come out with? You know what I mean? Like, and um, yeah. yeah it's I, also I, a challenge to, to push a concept further and further dude, as well. It, so. It's hard. It's difficult. I get anxiety about it. I'm like, holy shit, what am I going to do next? How, how am I going to one-up myself? You know what I mean? Like, I ask myself how much longer I'm going to do it for necessarily. Like I even like, I have this thing, this flavor of the month club I do on my apparel page, right. Where I've been doing it for 
few years and I've kind of been one upping my like creativeness with it to a point of like, I've like, like, you know, made a contract now that every month I've got to come up with some other version somehow of something, some in some way. I mean, I mean, maybe some will be cooler than others. I don't really know. It's funny too, because sometimes, you know, certain ones are more popular than other different designs I do and people will hit me up and, you know, sometimes be mad if they didn't get the one they wanted or something like that. And they, they tell me that I should have known this one was going to be more popular. I should have made more of it. <laughs> right. I always say to people, I'm like, yo, if I knew what was going to be popular, I'd be rich. You know what I mean? Like if I could exactly. read it like that, how I, I'm just a guy in a studio laughing, having fun with my buddies. You know what I mean? Like, and, I, and I'm hoping other people will like it too. You know what I mean? Like in the end, like, there's just, I'm, there are two sides to me. There is a serious side. I do get conceptual. I do think about my work beyond like just, you're taking a cool bong hit out of it. It's kind of pretty. Like I do think about what the choices I'm making are. And I, and I have fun kind of making choices that have reasons behind them and stuff like that. And I enjoy intellectualizing all this stuff. But in the end, it is just fun to make a cool bong and take a hit out of it. And it's fun to make a fun t-shirt that people get a, get a, get a kick out of, you know what I mean? And that, that's all you need. You know what I mean? Like you don't really need to complicate it that much. Like, I feel like if I get too bogged down and thinking about things, it makes me crazy. And so I just try to keep creating, creating, like you said, it's fun. Like I was asking me at the beginning of this, why you do a podcast or what led you to this. And it's like, there's a satisfaction you get from creating something that someone else is interested in. Like an audience kind of like, it's a, it really is like economics, even your energy supply and demand. And there's like, I wouldn't keep making, for instance, t-shirts, for instance, if people didn't want the t-shirts, like, cause I mean, exactly, well, yeah. it wouldn't even make sense. So it's like, they're the ones who are driving it. Like if I have people getting mad that I didn't make enough on the last drop. So I'm like, well, I guess I got to keep making these shirts. You know, if people were like, <laughs> if no one bought them and they were like, yo, fuck out of here with this shirt. I'd be like, all right, well, cool. Uh, fuck out of here. I'm going to do something else. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, dude, I, yeah, it's the same. Like if people didn't want to listen to the podcast, I wouldn't make the podcast for sure. Yeah, so. No doubt. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, in the end, like that movie I made, that's the thing that that movie is, uh, that's the thing that I've done in my life. That's definitely sort of like, I, I've never gotten the kind of feedback. Like people have fun getting the t-shirts and the pipes are neat and whatever are cool and, and whatever. I don't even know with pipes and stuff, but you know, the film film's a powerful medium. It's a really powerful medium. And I knew that cause I, I went to school for it and we, and we talked about it. We over intellectualized that in school. It got drilled into my head. But I got drilled in my head for, for the better because you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's a powerful medium. It, it, there's a reason that a corporation will spend millions of dollars for a 60 second spot during the Super Bowl or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that's how powerful 60 seconds of photo moving image and sound put together in a variation. That's how much effect that can have. You know what I mean? 60 seconds can sure, be yeah. millions to a company. Cause they're going to, they're going to make billions off that, that, you know what I mean? Like, and it's interesting. It's a, it's an interesting form of communication. You know what I mean? Like, and like, uh, yeah. I hope to do more movies. I'll tell you that. Like, I definitely, I'm trying to like basically say like, don't expect degenerate art too, but that actually doesn't mean I don't want to make film. I do. I actually have a huge love for fiction film. I love to actually write and direct scripts that were more about a really fun, awesome story that incorporated pipe making and maybe the stories of pipe making. I'd actually like to do well. Okay. So the movie Star Wars came out in 1982 documentary about graffiti about a year later another movie was made called wild style and wild style is sort of a fictionalized style wars 
In other words, Wild Style is a script about a graffiti writer. And he's like, you know, he's living in his house. He's got his brother who's in the army who doesn't want him to go out and paint, thinks he's a degenerate because he goes and paints. But he goes and paints and then some, he's having a battle with some other guy and he wants this girl. There's a whole story going on. So there's like a love interest and there's like a whole thing. You know what I mean? But it's like, it basically is, and, and like a famous graffiti writer named Lee actually plays a main character and a bunch of the characters in the movie are played by graffiti writers. And a lot of hip hop, famous hip hop, old school, because it's made in 83, uh, people are in it, like um, Patty Astor, Blondie, and um, people like that. So um, Fab Five Freddy or whatever. So I would love to, like, I feel like Degenerate Art's a dope movie because it's like a documentary or whatever about this subculture. But you know what Degenerate Art doesn't talk about? Doesn't talk about all the shit that, your average person doesn't want to talk about in an interview. In other words, remember what I was saying to you in the beginning of this podcast about the nineties and my beginning career with pipe making was that pipe makers were outlaws. Most of us were selling weed on the side, growing weed, fucking kind of living on this underground type, like vibe. That shit is mad. Interesting. I don't talk about that in the degenerate art. No one is talking about how they, you know, got into some situation with selling weed and how to do made this, you know what I mean? Like I would love to take this real stories of people and their ex, their crazy adventures and mishaps of selling weed and growing weed and comp combining with the culture and make that into a fictional film where you could actually be, I mean, cause reality is the most interesting shit. You know what I mean? Like the best stories are rooted in reality. You just change the names and get actors to play them. You know what I mean? Like, and make it fun. And then you can be all, whatever you want you get all tarantino on them or whatever you want you get all the the fun stuff going on in there you know what i mean like that's actually i'm kind of interested in doing something like that i'm a little intimidated by it but I, that's what i'd like to do actually if i was gonna make another movie just even a short too it wouldn't have to be a full length thing yeah that sounds dope man i uh yeah. i look I think forward you to tell a different story you know, it'd be cool to be like, oh, cool. What's happened since Degenerate Art? Oh, they came out with bangers and they're dabbing and there's recyclers. Like, then roll credits. Like, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't see the movie there. You know what I mean? Like, in terms of like, right. that, that's interesting to like, you know, and I'm one of them when I say this, but to, to glass pipe nerds or something like that. Like, guys who were like super into the scene that wanted just like, you know, you know skateboard nerds, in a, you know, or whatever. People were into like something, but like... um It'd be cool to make a movie to like tell the real stories of the crazy, like the people, the people are the most interesting thing in this culture. Glass is an inanimate object. It's just a thing. You know what I mean? What's really interesting is the people, the collectors, the makers, the whole culture and all that. That's what's interesting. You know, who these people are, who these people are that buy these expensive pipes, who these people are that make these expensive pipes, why they do each of it, how they live their lives. Like, wouldn't you want to find out? Like when I, when I see on Instagram, sometimes I'll like see some glass, one of the like real big name glass pipe guys make a pipe, right? And put it up and say that some guy scooped it, right? And I'll know that this guy charges a lot for his pieces. I'll know that this guy's pipes go for $40,000 or $80,000 or $50,000 or whatever the fucking price is, right? Something pretty crazy, right? And then I'll think to myself, first thought is, who the fuck's this guy that scooped this pipe? Who is he? Like, not only how did he have the money, but why did he value this pipe enough that he was like, I've got 50 grand to spend and I'm going to get that pipe. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and there's all types of people. There's probably guys who are just like trappers, quote unquote, who are like, you know, selling weed or growing weed or doing whatever they're doing or pass or whatever. Or who knows? Maybe there's some guys who are perfect. Maybe they got a legal scene or, you know what I mean? Or, or whatever. Or maybe they're not even in the cannabis industry. Maybe they're like a lawyer or something like that who likes to smoke weed. It's just balling. You know what I mean? And like has money like that, basically. That's not a big deal for their budget to buy something like that or whatever. But isn't it interesting who these people are? 
Don't you want to know? You know what I mean? That's the story right there. That's what I want to get into, but that's a difficult line. Cause I'm like, you know, I want to know about the pipe maker who's raising kids. How do you deal with that? Especially now it's a little different cause weed's legal. So I think it's a little more, I remember like thinking when I was making my film though, back in the day in the generate art, and it was definitely met many pipe makers. I went to their house interview. They had families, they had kids, they had a wife. And there were some interesting conversations about like, how do you explain it to your kid? I touch on it in Degenerate Art a little bit. You know what I mean? Um, but it's like, you know, uh, how, do you, how do you deal with this? How, what, is there a conflict between making pipes and raising a family? Especially if you don't live in Oregon. Let's say you live in Illinois. You know what I mean? Like, or right. where weed culture is not accepted. Like, and what happens when the kid's in class and they ask what your dad does for a living? Do they know? Do they know? Your kids are smart. They usually figure stuff out. Like, you know what I mean? If you're making pipes and you might be a weed smoker, kids probably going to figure it out unless you're like really crazy about hiding it. You know what I mean? I don't have kids, so I don't know. But these are interesting things to me. These are what I want to, this is, that's interesting. You know what I mean? The fact that we went from glass and glass to bangers, I mean, that's cool. But I want to know about these people, you know? But that's, that's, it's a hard line to tread. So it's funny. I know you hit me up. You were asking about my buddies kind of making a documentary about me. Yeah. And part of the influence for that is that the guy who's making it is my friend, Dan Collins, who edited Degenerate Art with me. He's my old school buddy I was talking about that I got to jump on the film with me. He's okay, really, cool. the other, he's the other major creative force in, in, in Degenerate Art or whatever. Um, but uh, so, you know, honestly, since he made Degenerate Art, he's now been doing more film projects and video projects in the glass pipe world. It kind of like opened a door for him. And he was also just very interested in it himself. Um, and so, you know, he, we've talked about, you know, what will we do? You know, he's, he's just a filmmaker. He doesn't even blow glass. So his thing is I'm just trying to make films. Like, what am I going to do? And, and I've just, you know, shot the shit with him about different ideas and things. But in general, my thing always has been like, just what I said to you, I said, you know, an interesting movie is about interesting people. I was like, people are the subject that you got to like, you know, tell a story basically. Um, and uh, I always thought that the next step after Degenerate Art was just to get more personal, really. Like I said, who are these people? And so at that point, it's kind of like, how do you do that, though? Because that talk about responsibility. You have a responsibility. Let's say I'm making Degenerate Art and I'm putting out a movie about the scene of Glass Pipes. It's like I have a responsibility of the scene. But there's no one in the movie featured too heavily, maybe minus Bob Snodgrass, you know what I mean? That like everyone just kind of is like people are treated more as a voice of a whole than they are focused on too much. You know what I mean? Which was on purpose, you know, I had a strategy with that basically. I didn't want to do a narrator. I thought it'd be a way more, see, I've studied film theory. So I've studied things like the idea of a narrated voice dominating a movie or like Michael Moore, for instance, who does like Fahrenheit 911 or all those movies or whatever, like Bowling for Columbine, like people accuse Mer Michael Moore and I, I enjoy his films. But people accuse him of making himself the subject of the movie because he puts himself in the movie so much. And he kind of narrates and kind of carries the film and, and stuff like that. And like moves the subject matter along or connects it by being in the movie usually. And like stuff like that. So I consciously thought of those things when I was making degenerate art, that was the good part of going to film school and having that background or whatever is I had those thoughts in my head already, that kind of background. So I thought to myself strategically, I was like, let me try to like, you know, take these interviews and take, I basically, instead of being like, you know, I basically was like, let me take the parts that I can from each one that further the story along. Like that's how I chose people's lines and sort of, or place them in the movie was like how they could further the story along with their voice, but not have the voice told by story told by one, one person. You know what I mean? 
I basically was telling my buddy Dan, like, I think the next step is to get more personal. You know what I mean? It's to like really find out these people are. And so then the next thing is like, how do you take responsibility for that? Like you can put out a movie about someone and you get out their personal life. Maybe in the end, they don't even realize it. But next thing you know, it's on Netflix, let's say, right? I got a movie on Netflix once. Maybe I could do it again, right? Next, let's say I make a, a, a documentary about Pipe Maker X, right? And I get into there and he's got conflict with his wife and I capture some crazy shit. Maybe he has, who knows what personal things to get into. And maybe he, maybe I even make the final cut of the movie and show it to him. And maybe he even is like, okay, yeah. Like maybe I've convinced him that this is cool and he shouldn't worry about it or whatever. You're putting yourself out there or whatever. Next thing you know, it's on Netflix and everyone sees it and, and people like get a view into this, you know, who knows, you know what I mean? You got to be careful what you put out there about someone and how that can affect their life and stuff like that. It could be positive. It could be negative. You know what I mean? Like depending on, you know, you have a responsibility basically of how you, what you show people and what you don't show people and what is, you know what I mean? So long story short, I was kind of like, well, how do you, the best way to take that responsibility is maybe just do it about yourself, kind of, you know what I mean? In a sense, because then you don't have to really, so that's how I'm kind of working. Like I told my buddy, Dan, I said, that's, I think we should do is you should make a movie about someone. And then he came back and was like, I want to make a movie about you. And I was like, all right. And it's cool because Dan and I are good friends. We've known each other for a long time. So when we hang out and I, it's funny, I kind of like, he is the director of the movie. It's his movie. It's not my movie. I'm the subject, but I can't help sometimes trying to jump over the line. Like I, I've come up with concepts. Like I was like, Hey, let's take a ride to my hometown and let's like go to a bunch of different spots in my hometown that have to do with like moments of me growing up or I can chat instead of me just telling you the story, let's go to the park that I took mushrooms in and I'll tell you about the time I took mushrooms when I was 15 or whatever. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. We'll do it in the park and we'll physically be there. You know what I mean? Like it'll kind of inspire me or whatever. And like, so I was like co-directing in weird ways like that. I was like coming up with concepts he could do for the film. Um, but I'm really nervous about it actually, because I when it's, it's the guy's a good friend of mine and I know that I'll be obviously be able to watch the movie before he puts it out. So I'll be able to like, Hey, Hey, this is too far. I don't think I want to put that part of myself out there or whatever, but I'm treating it like I'm not worried about it. You know what I mean? I'm just like saying anything. I'm like getting super personal, you know, probably too personal. Some of that shit will probably be cut. You know what I mean? Who knows? But, uh, I mean, we'll see. I always feel like in the, this kind of phase of filmmaking that there is no movie and it's never coming out. So I almost don't even think this is really a movie, but I, I mean, if Dan was sitting here, he'd probably be shaking his head go, Oh no, motherfucker. I'm making this movie. <laughs> right. Dan, well, I know he is going to do it but I'm nervous about it. I'm kind of scared about it because I'm really trying to let my guard down and just talk. And like, I don't know. Sometimes you wonder even if your story is worthy, does anyone give a shit? Why should they care about fucking me? You know what I mean? Like I try not to have an ego. We all have egos. So I'm not going to deny I have one. We all have it. Right. And I think that's a good first step to even acknowledge that you have an ego because that's, I think that's mature to some degree or another, you know, even if you forget that the next moment and, and whatever, but, uh, you know, I never try to think my shit doesn't stink or I'm more important than anyone or anyone should pay attention to me any more than anyone else. So then I'm like, well, why are you making a documentary about me? Like, I don't got a story to tell. Who wants to spend time? You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's weird. It's funny. But I love filmmaking, so I'm kind of also into it in a weird... Like, I think it's what should happen. So I'm like, well, fuck it. I guess if I... It's one of those things that you're almost like a scientist and you're working in a lab and you're creating something and you're like, well, if I'm going to test this on other people, I should test it on myself first. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. like let me like take the drug first and make sure I don't die. And then, then I'll try on other people. Cause you don't want to, you know, let me, if I ruin my life, I can stop there and not ruin anyone else's life, but I don't want to ruin else, someone else's life first by like putting out too much information about them or something weird like that. I don't, I don't even know. I mean, I'm flattered that even you hit me up and want to talk to me and whatever. I, I don't even know. That's why I'm like, how did you hear about me? Like, you know, 
I don't know. Hey, yeah, no, I, dude, I'm and I'm flattered that you would take the time to talk to me as well. So uh, it's mutual. But uh, last question, dude, if you could hear from anyone from either the hash or the glass world on the podcast, who would it be? Um, hmm. uh, the hash world or the glass world. Let me think. Um, I've always been enamored with some of those old school hash guys like Robert Connell Clark. You know that dude? Oh yeah. 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 He wrote that book hashish. Dude, my mic is sitting on hashish, the book right Right. now. (laughs) Um, and I know Mark Richardson has met him before. I think at one point he actually did own a bubbler of mine. I'm not sure if he still owns it or not. I did kind of make a bubbler that things sort of went to, to him. But, uh, you know, like, I'm kind of a fan of old school shit. So it'd be really cool to hear these, like, hear him on the, th- on the broadcast and hear him tell all these old stories of shit that's, like, about smuggling hash all over the thing or seeds or whatever they were doing and making hash in other countries. I mean, that sounds wild and adventurous. And then to conversely get their perspective on today. You know, is Robert Connell Clark, is he smoking hash rosin? Is he smoking the Skittles rosin right now or what? You know, (laughs) right, right. smoking runts or what's the deal? You know what I mean? Like, what does he even think about new school strains and new school hash and all that kind of stuff? You know what I'm saying? Like, um, yeah, dude, I think that's a great, uh, great pick. Yeah. Um, and then glass wise, I mean, I think it would be cool for you to keep going with glass. I think that just opens another avenue for you really. And I think, Honestly, I would start with OGs. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like those are the people, like, I'm not saying don't pick some, like, hotter new artists you think might be interested in, and people might be interested in, do whoever. But um, I think it's cool to start with some of the cats like me who have stories to tell. You know what I mean? Like, um, I would say Marcel or Jason or Banjo or um, Mike Gong or um, some of those dudes that have kind of been around for a while because it's fun. There's a lot of, there's a lot to cover. You can talk... You get younger cats who are maybe newer to seeing it to hear some like old perspective. And then also it's interesting to hear those cats perspective of what's going on now. You know what I mean? And all that kind of stuff. But I would, you know, as long as your audience is into it, keep throwing the glass in there too. And like you said, if you notice, I can go off for a while about hash and weed where I'm not talking about art or glass. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) That's a big part of my life. That's why I do what I do in the end. Like, you know what I mean? Like, as much as I can play the pretentious art dude, I, um, I'm just a weed smoker in the end. Like that's actually the position I really like playing. It's just the guy who's got the weed smoking the weed. You know what I mean? Like, um, I kind of balance it out. If I'm in a room full of art nerds, I'm smoking weed. And I'm that guy. And if I'm in a room full of stoners, then maybe I'm the art nerd. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can relate on the, on the smoking weed part, but man, uh, again, I'm super appreciative of you taking the time and yeah, I'll definitely try to continue with the glass. Long. You should probably edit. There might be some bullshit in there you want to edit out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, there might Maybe be some. some out, things in. Like you know, make it as tight as refined as you want, or leave whatever you want in there. I don't care. All right, cool. Yeah, I I try to go with the flow, and we'll see what happens. Uh, when you listen uh, to your the, podcast, is it is it a is it a subscription service, Patreon, or is there a way to listen to like your past episodes on somewhere on YouTube, or do you have a link somewhere? Or how does it all work? Yeah. So the like. So the main podcasts are like, you know, it's, it's public. So like you can go back on iTunes or Spotify or pretty much anything like and listen to all the episodes. The only thing that's like, I quote unquote paid is like, I do these additional interviews for people that like give some cash a month. And it's with like people that maybe are a little lesser known or, or maybe like a different arena or, 
whatever. And so, yeah, just like more interesting interviews. Like I talked with this guy in India a while back ago and like about hash and about culture and about like religion and all just like all this stuff that kind of like complements the, the other ones. But uh, the only thing I do do is like, I do early releases for people that give me a little more money. So like, for example, I'll throw up an interview after I do it and then it'll go out to the public a month or two months later or whatever. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the breakdown of it mostly, but it's to the public. Yeah. I'm definitely going to try to check out a couple of your other past ones. So you sound yeah, thanks, man. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. You can check it out on Spotify and, um, what is yeah, it a hashish in or hash? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's the hashish in, and it's just like a play on, uh, the term the hashish in. Right. But, right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. But, uh, dude, I, uh, yeah, I, again, I'm, I'm super appreciative and I appreciate everybody listening. Do you have anything else you want to say before? No, I just want to say thanks for having me on and anyone who's made it this far. Thanks for listening to me babble and everyone. <laughs> I appreciate everyone out there. Um, I love weed. I hope you do too. Um, let's legalize it across this fucking nation and uh, party. Yeah, I agree with that. We'll, we'll catch you all next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish In. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.